Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome everybody, Almost Sideways Podcast. We're at you with another episode here. Uh, thank you so much for listening in. My name is Terry Plucknett, your host. And joining me are my little brother Todd Plucknett and our buddy Zach Saltz. Uh, Todd, I, I usually ask like what you've been watching this week, but one of the things that I know all three of us watched this week was we actually had some actual sports news because we had the NFL draft this week. So, um, Todd, give us give us your thoughts on uh, on the NFL draft. Uh, production not ideal. Uh, there were some funny things that kind of happened because everyone saw re- doing it remotely. But uh, it was probably the most entertained by been any by anything in the last you know month and a half because uh, it was something that kind of mattered. So, yeah, Zach, how about you? Yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, the production value, yeah, not so great. Definitely some interesting backgrounds. I want to hang out in... Uh, uh, Cliff uh, Kingsbury? The, yeah, Cl- Cliff Kingsbury's house, which some people compared to Ryan Gosling's house in Crazy Stupid Love, which is funny because Cliff Kingsbury also looks like Ryan Gosling. Yeah, um, he does. Yeah, I want... I wanted to also hang out with Nick Saban in his game room, maybe play some pool, you know, make it like that episode of Seinfeld where Kramer and, uh, you know, Frank Costanza are playing pool in the miniature game room. I don't know. Lots, lots of cool places I'd rather be than my house. Yeah, obviously, also, many of them were not social distancing. That was probably my favorite sort of unsaid thing. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I'm I like sure how... I saw Drew Rosenhaus in three different places. <laughs> I like how everyone kind of had this, a lot of guys had like this elaborate setup just for the draft. And then it was obvious Bill Belichick was just sitting at his dining room table. And then I love the, yeah, all right, so- Pats are about to make a pick. Let's see what Belichick's up to. And his dog was sitting in his chair. That was like my favorite moment of the whole thing. <laughs> He's making the picks for him. That's why they picked a kicker out of Marshall in the fifth round. <laughs> Yeah, you, you can really tell a lot of personality by the, by the way that they set... Like, the coaches that didn't give a shit about the way they decorated their house. Another one would be Bruce Arians, who sat near his, like, slider, and you could see his barbecue. Like, he didn't, did not give two shits about the way his house looked, you know? And that's his personality, which is awesome. But if we're talking about, about people's houses, you also have to mention Mike Vrabel, the coach of the Titans, who on Thursday night... I mean, he had, I think one of his kids was in spandex behind him. Another one was wearing a weird jersey. And then there was like a reflection of someone sitting on a toilet. So that, that I, there was some weird stuff going on there. Yeah. Yeah, I saw the pictures of that. I didn't notice that live. but I, Except for the guy in spandex, obviously. That was interesting. <laughs> interesting to say the least, yeah. Uh, but it was it was definitely entertaining. I I didn't know just how starved for sports I was until I found myself watching literally every minute of the draft. I think it's the first draft I literally sat and watched every minute of. Yeah, well, the, the later rounds usually are better because they're at least in at a location. But now it was just like Trey was just sitting in the studio by himself and just like randomly picking out players to ask, you know, Mel about. <laughs> it was interesting to so have I... Mel and Daniel Jeremiah instead of Mel and Todd McShay. And it always bothered me how Lewis Riddick was on like a five second delay. 
Yeah, that was one. Okay, so I have a question, which is that when Goodell, who I think clearly was the LVP of this whole event, he was awful and stiff. When he was like looking at the TV with the fans, the fans couldn't see him, right? Like he's he's just looking at a screen, but it's not like the fans can see him. I don't know. It looked. Is this? We were trying to figure this out. Ruse? My wife mentioned that it looked like there might have been a little camera on the top of his TV, so he might have had it set up so that he could talk directly to the fans like that. I thought he was awful, and then he was like, "Miami fans, here's a treat for Tua," and it's like, "Oh, great! You just gave away their drafting offensive lineman, you doofus!" You know, he was just—he was terrible, and st- and he also had like a 10-second delay, and uh, just just a, a pain. Well, it was clear that he was also reading off a teleprompter, but then he kept screwing up reading off of it. So I was like, "Is he really just that boring to listen to?" <laughs> yeah, well, and and he he, ended, he started out in a suit, and by the end of it, he was still wearing khakis, but he was wearing a t-shirt. I was like, "Man, yeah, I noticed get, that get too." It. He didn't, he never got to sweatpants, so that that the bed outfit went, uh, changed. went by the wayside. There, there there was a there was a point on Friday where you could tell he just didn't care anymore, as he just put his feet up and was lounging back in his chair. <laughs> oh yeah, he was drunk. He he made almost he ate almost an entire jar of of M and M's in like two hours. <laughs> uh, he was feeling it. And and Todd, not there weren't just there wasn't just one, but there were two Nebraska Cornhuskers drafted. Yeah, born like ten minutes apart. Yeah, yeah, the Davis twins were both drafted. We were hoping there'd be. I didn't. We didn't know Carlos was going to be drafted. We knew Khalil was going to be drafted. Lamar Jackson should have been drafted too. That kind of that kind of frustrated me a little bit. And Zach, there were quite a few uh, quite a few ducks drafted, uh, like their entire offensive line and Justin Herbert. Yes, and and some people with Kansas connections. One of the offensive linemen uh, was drafted by the Bengals, and Isaiah Simmons is a product of Olathe North High School. Woohoo! Not that I give a shit, but... Isaiah Simmons is also born in Omaha. And he ends up at Clemson. He, sh- he should be a guest on this podcast with those kind of connections. That, that yeah, yeah. All right, well, uh, well, Zach, I see you actually have a beverage today, so what are you drinking? I'm drinking some Copperhead Pale Ale from Free State Brewery. I do think at some point I'm going to have to go to the liquor store this week. It's, it's really frightening, but... You know, it's kind of like how there's a, there's incentive. You know, you go through the darkness of the tunnel, and then there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I just have to get through the darkness. You can make it. I believe I in you. I think so. Todd, what do you got? I have the Old Smoky Tennessee Mango Habanero Whiskey. Figured Terry would like the God. sound of that. Mango habanero and I tried whiskey. It, wow. And I'm not going to be able to drink it the whole time because it does like it's really sweet, but it has the the dryness that you just like get a pepper. So I'm, I wouldn't be able to talk and do that at the same time. But I'll take a shot here. Cheers. You just gonna take a shot, dude. Dude. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So he's not going to be talking for would the you, next five minutes. Would you rather? Drink a full thing of that, or or a whole uh, bowl full of M and M's like Roger Goodell. Oh, I'd rather drink the whole bottle. Good answer. <laughs> well, uh, I'm I'm still uh, supporting uh, local uh, local businesses here. We filled up a growler again this week. This is uh, Ridge Walker. It's the Ridge Wars Five, the ESB. So that's what that's what I got here. So it's pretty good. What's, it's, what it, what is ESB? 
What does that mean? Um, it's like isn't that the ra- the video game rating system? Or do I have that wrong? No, what is it? It's it's what it's what I always see on Red Hooks. It always says ESP. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what it stands for. English English style pale ale. Extra special bitter is what ESB stands for. They call it the Ridge Wars Five because it's ESB like Empire Strikes Back. So it's Ridge Wars Five and Star Wars Five. But uh, but it's good. It's a lot softer taste than the one I had last week, and uh. And I like it. It's it's really easy to drink. So, and with a seven point one, it's kind of dangerous for it to be pretty easy to drink. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, all right. Well, before we get into, we're reviewing a new movie this week that uh, came out on Netflix this weekend. We're recording this uh, Sunday afternoon. It is three fifteen Pacific time. Uh, first, let's see uh, what we've been watching. Uh, so, Zach, I'm going to you first. What do you What have you been watching this week? Well, I can't say I've been watching a whole lot. Um, I've been watching season two of Ozark, which I think is fantastic. Um, I will say that I um, I rewatched a movie a little while ago uh, that I had seen maybe about 15 years ago and had forgotten mostly. And that movie is Nobody's Fool directed by Robert Benton's and starring uh, Paul Newman. So it's not a total new watch, but it was on uh, Amazon Prime. And I got to say, I really liked this movie. I, I didn't remember liking it as, as much when I originally saw it. Um, it stars Paul Newman as this kind of um, like handyman who lives in this kind of sleepy town in western New York. And he lives with uh, his former teacher, played by Jessica Tandy. And they're both, you know, septuagenarians or whatever. They're both very old. And uh, it's kind of about how um, he has to, he, he reconnects with his son over the course of the movie. He has this sort of uh, flirtatious, uh, you know, uh, innuendo with the Melanie Griffith character who's who's married to Bruce Willis in this movie. Anyway, I, I really like this movie. I can't say it's a total new watch, but it was kind of new for me in the sense that I kind of rediscovered it. I will say, though, that the thing that I did watch that was new this week is, you know, we have this world around us that is rapidly crumbling, right? And we have a lunatic in the White House and we have this vaccine that isn't coming, you know, for, for years, you know. So so uh, to get out of the, the horrors of the world, I sometimes have to turn to just raw, naked escapism. And Netflix has been great at providing some of that and especially trashy Netflix reality shows. So I was a big fan of... Um, Love is Blind, the show where they had these uh, these contestants uh, meet and fall in love with each other, but they could not see each other's faces. And the only way they could is if they if they agreed to get engaged to each other and get married. I thought that was really good. The newest one, though, this week that I discovered and plowed my way through was Too Hot to Handle. And the premise is these young foxy people in their bathing suits go to like this uh, location, you know, in like Mexico, and uh, they cannot have sex for 30 days. And if they do not have sex for 30 days, they get $100,000. But any sort of like infraction, like a kissing or obviously having sex or self-gratification, shall we say, results in them losing money each day. It's a really kind of twisted premise. It made me think that, I mean, obviously I would do very well on this show. It's maybe TMI. The show that I would like to go on, though, would be the sh- a show where... Uh, I could not pet a dog, and if I and, and there were a bunch of dogs, and so if I could not pet a dog for thirty days, I would win a hundred thousand dollars. That would be a show I would want to watch, and I don't know if I could win that show. Man, that would be some racy Netflix reality TV there. Exactly. Yeah. 
I, I saw that show existed, but I, I haven't watched any of it. Oh, it's it's a great watch. It makes you forget about all the problems of the world. <laughs> Although it helps if there's alcohol involved. Uh, all right, well, I'm going to go next. I, uh, I watched the first two episodes of The Last Dance, the new uh, documentary series on ESPN about the, the 90s Bulls. Fascinating stuff. There's a whole lot that was going on behind the scenes that I had no idea about because I was like 10. But uh, it's really interesting to watch. And so uh, episodes three and four are uh, debuting tonight as we speak tonight. Probably when you listen to this, they will have already come out. Uh, But one of them is going to be about Dennis Rodman. If you had watched the draft, you may have heard Trey Wingo talk about how it's going to be talking about Dennis Rodman. That's all he would say about it. Um, Yeah, so there was that. And then um, I've, I've been working my way through Breaking Bad still. I'm into season three now. I've gotten through episode one of season three. Um. So I've, there's that there. Um, and I I was struck this time. Watch, I've watched the end of season two a couple times now. And just how devastating the, the end of that season is is just insane. Um, but uh, the movie I want to talk about is one I just uh, I just watched today. And it I recorded it off of TCM last week. TCM did their classic film festival from home and just did it all on the... On, uh, on TV, and I recorded this documentary called Harold and Lillian, A Hollywood Love Story, and I watched that this afternoon. Um, it is uh, the story of Harold and Lillian Michelson. Uh, Harold Michelson was a storyboard artist turned production designer, and Lillian Michelson uh, was a, uh, a Hollywood researcher uh, for motion pictures, and uh, they were married for like 60 years in the midst of both being in the industry and it's just kind of a story of their life and kind of how they they went along uh harold michelson worked with uh cecil b demille and he worked with uh with william wyler and alfred hitchcock and mike nichols like he designed the shot of of mrs robinson and uh and dustin hoffman through the leg he designed that shot on, on a storyboard um, and then he ended up becoming a two-time Oscar-nominated production designer for um, Star Trek and Terms of Endearment. So uh, he kind of had a had a crazy career. And then she comes along and just on a whim ends up in a in a research library and uh, becomes like one of the go-to Hollywood researchers um, for like 30 years. And um, one of their best friends is uh, plays a major part in the in the documentary. Who also executive produced it. And that was Danny DeVito. He had he had been a good friend of theirs. Eventually, they both ended up at DreamWorks at the end of their career. And uh, one of the cool things they said was they they were so beloved in the industry that um, the second Shrek movie, when uh, Shrek and Fiona go meet the the king and queen of the of the kingdom. Uh, the king and queen's names are Harold and Lillian for Harold and Lillian Michelson. So uh, it, it was just a sweet movie. Um, when uh, Ben Mankiewicz was introducing it on TCM, he said, it's just lovely. And he said it over and over again, because that's just what it is. Uh, it's a three and a half star movie. It's really cool. They actually, because he was a storyboarder, they, uh, as she's telling stories, they intersperse um, uh, storyboards of their life as they go along, which was really, really a neat way to tell the story. But yeah, Really sweet movie. If you haven't uh, seen it yet, I don't even know where else you could catch it. Um, it just happened to be on TCM last week. But yeah, Harold and Lily in a Hollywood Love Story. Really cool movie. Have, cool. have either of you guys heard of it or heard of them? 
I want to say I've heard of it. I have not seen it, but I think I remember hearing about that documentary a few years ago. Okay, yeah. Um, it uh, first debuted in 2015, but its theatrical release was 2017. So, All right, Todd, what have All you been right. watching? Uh, I started, I'm probably a handful of episodes into The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, the Amazon Prime uh, comedy drama. It's about this... Uh, a uh, housewife in the 1960s who ends up like stumbling upon being a stand-up comedian in New York. She's like contemporaries with Lenny Bruce and, and stuff. It's it's funny so far. Uh, Kevin Pollock's in it. Tony Shalhoub. Rachel Brosnahan's the main character, and she's awesome. So I I'm I'm intrigued by where it's gonna go. I don't know how long it could last, but it's going into season four. So I'm I'm interested to see how how it goes from there. And I did also watch the first two episodes of The Last Dance. I'm not as crazy about it as everyone else. I think it's kind of weird that they sat on this footage for, you know, like 20 plus years and then, you know, just decide to release it when Jerry Krause dies. And so they, uh, then they trash him the whole time. So I, I think that's a little odd, but I did like to hear a, a, the, a whole episode about Scottie Pippen. He's my favorite athlete of all time. So that was cool. Yeah. There were some really interesting stories ahead of Scotty. That was, that was an, that was a good episode. Well, according to the Bill Simmons podcast, he talked a little bit about how the the footage of Jordan was sort of like this mythical footage that you couldn't get your hands on for a really long time, almost like the Star Wars holiday special of the NBA for like 20 years, because I don't know, there was licensing issues. And frankly, Jordan probably wouldn't have wanted it to be released or they would have had to pay him a substantial sum of money. So I think there's there's stories behind why this footage wasn't released earlier. Well, they gave them, like, exclusive rights to follow them around with cameras the entire season. So, I mean, I think that they would have had any right to release it that they wanted to. But they had to wait for the guy, the villain to die so he couldn't uh, stand there and defend himself, I guess. How is Scottie Pippen your favorite athlete of all time? I didn't know this. <laughs> yeah, it's, I've, it's always been that way. I, I love the really? the really tall small forwards who can play basically any position. That's why Richard Lewis is like a top five NBA player for me too. And Rashid. Like, I don't know. And Rashid. Yeah. I guess really tall guys with a really diverse skill set. And he was really the original one. Pippen pretty much, uh, I think LeBron pretty much modeled his game after Pippen in a lot of ways. I can see that. All right. All right. So there's some things uh, if you want to try and find, you can get caught up on. Let's get into our movie review for this week. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made. You gotta see it. Movie reviews. Uh, for this week, like I said, we're reviewing a new movie. Just came out on Netflix, and uh, I've been hearing a lot about it. They uh, actually had some television commercials for a Netflix movie premiere, which is rare. Uh, it's currently number one. Uh, viewed thing on Netflix in the United States. This movie is called Extraction. They're hoping if you spin the chamber enough times, you're gonna catch a bullet. It's just easy that way. This is an extraction. So who are the players? Biggest drug lord in India versus biggest drug lord in Bangladesh. <laughs> Some mythic shit, huh? It's a kidnapping. Drug lord's son. Clock's running at 16 hours. 
proof of life as of six hours ago. You do exactly as I say. Who are you? Name? Ovi. Move fast. Stay low. Uh, it's directed by Sam Hargrave, written by Joe Russo of the Russo Brothers, executive produced by the Russo Brothers. Um, and this is a really fascinating movie. It stars Chris Hemsworth as Tyler Rake, who's this like um, hired hand... Uh, kind of mercenary type of guy and he gets hired to um he and his team get hired to extract uh, a child like teenager who had been kidnapped after uh or as a part of a drug war between india and bangladesh so he has to go uh into bangladesh and try and uh rescue this this kid from uh from the drug cartel there uh it is an action-packed movie um I was really, I was really impressed by the action scenes. A lot of people I've heard have tried to compare it to John Wick. I haven't seen John Wick, like any of them, which I know is a, is quite the omission on my part. But um, it, it's a lot of fun. There's a, there's like a ten minute action scene in the middle of it that is, uh, it's all one shot or at least meant to look like one shot, which just adds to the tension and the and the adrenaline rush of the movie. Um, Chris Hemsworth is, is definitely in his element here. He does a really good job. I gotta say the first like five minutes of the movie, the opening scene as we're watching what's going on, I'm like, oh, okay, this is, this is a not funny version of Rush Hour because it felt like the start of Rush Hour with this kid kind of getting taxied around and then you know he's gonna get kidnapped in some way, um, but, uh, and in some ways the plot kind of is that except it's drug dealers, not, you know, like diplomats from other countries in the united states uh i really liked it i'm giving it three stars it was a whole lot of fun um it was it was stressful it it was a solid action movie that really uh made you think and i will say um and we we might talk about this a little more i don't want to give anything away but um i could see the final shot of the movie either adding or taking away from the the movie experience I actually really liked the last shot of the movie, and I thought it was it was cool how they did it without really compromising anything too. So, I'm I'm gonna throw that out there too. So three star movie uh, for me, uh, definitely worth watching, especially since we're all sitting at home with nothing to do and it's on Netflix. Uh, Zach, going to you next. What did you think of Extraction? Perfect. I was hoping you'd go to me next because this sets it up perfectly. I hated this movie. I thought it was a total waste of time. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, well, I have a little bit more to say, but that's essentially my, my, I feel almost the exact opposite of you. Um, I really kind of, uh, hated this movie. It, it is like, it's basically man on fire meets some elements of like 80s Schwarzenegger with like a little bit of the Chow Yun Fat stuff, because I will say the, uh, you know, the 10 minute, uh, single take in the middle of the movie in that, uh, in that kind of tenement, 
was really cool. That was the best part of the movie. In fact, that had me like looking up for my phone being like, oh yeah, this is actually kind of cool. I wish more of the movie was kind of like this. Like, I mean, you, you see this like really gritty style and obviously there's some CGI involved, but I was actually really legitimately impressed by that. So much so that that kind of made me dislike the movie even more, knowing that the filmmakers were talented enough to put together a sequence like that and they wasted the the other hour and 50 minutes on on a movie that I think is borderline incoherent at times. For example, you're basically, I, I don't want to go too much into spoilers here, but basically the, the, the twist in this movie sort of involves the fact that there is a shortage of money. And that there is a shortage of money on one end of this transfer for the hostage. Okay, shortage of money, fine. You're telling me that there is a shortage of money when you are basically also simultaneously able to uh, b destroy the entire city of Dhaka. You have helicopters in flames. You have cars crashing all over the place. And you're telling me that you, you can't afford the bounty for this kid? Like, give me a break. So the, the plot is, I, I think, borderline incoherent. Hold on. I, thought I, don't, was, think, I don't yeah. think there was a shortage of money. I, I think if I heard right... Um, Someone and and again, this is getting a little bit into spoilers, but I think he was taking the other half for himself. I think that's what. Okay, happened. well, you think because I don't know either. It was incoherent. It didn't make any sense. I I, I couldn't tell you what was going on. Like, and, like, and, and, and all the, the all the theatrics of what was happening in DACA that was from that was from the team. That wasn't from you know the funds that were coming in. Yeah, but but the reason why that there there was this there was this character who intervenes, right? And it's basically because there's a shortage of money on on one of the ends. Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't know. It's 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 incoherent, and of course the story doesn't really matter in a movie like this. But you know, it really did get in the way because there's no real character development. Um, the Chris Hemsworth character, I get it. You know, he wants to be this this loner, badass mercenary, as if there's any other kind in movies today, right? So uh, you know, he continues this sort sort of cliche, um, sort of in the John Wick tradition, I guess. Uh, you, you randomly have Hopper from Stranger Things in the middle of this movie, and then what happens with him is 100% predictable. You could see that coming oh, yeah. from miles and miles away. That, that was Every very Every character obvious. in the movie saw it coming. Like, as soon as his Ex name is mentioned. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, we don't even, you know, we don't even really get Chris Hemsworth with, with his shirt off. Come on, what, what's, what were we paying the price of admission for? I mean, I guess it's on Netflix, so we're not paying any money for it. But I guess, <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, the best part of the movie is the character played by Golshift, oh boy, I'm going to butcher her name. The only woman in the movie, Golshifte Farahani, because she was also in About Ellie, which is Oscar Fahadi's fourth best movie and she was really good in that movie although she doesn't play ellie but she is the main character in that and movie. she was in patterson and she was in patterson she played uh uh adam driver's wife in patterson or girlfriend um she's a really good actor i i wish she was in this movie more uh i i really liked her she was maybe the only character that had any sort of sense of uh, i don't know in, in intrigue or or mystery or interest um i thought it was a total waste of time i borderline kind of hated it one half stars all right, Todd, give it give it the two two and a half star rating here. Uh, I'm actually with Terry on this. I yeah. give it three stars. As well. I I think it's I think this is exactly what Hemsworth is good at. I think it's his second best performance after Rush, and uh, I mean I and this director he's a, he's like the go to stunt coordinator of the MCU, and you could really tell like those those fight scenes were close quarters, and they were like creative, like the raid or John Wick, and it was like. 
it was like as brutal as Rambo, but at the same time it was sort of almost believable, like it was James Jason Bourne or something. But it's like the finished package, I feel like is almost looks like triple X in a way. I I think it's kind of awesome, and I think it sets it up for sequels and a be a franchise, which I think is exactly what Netflix wants. And I, I don't know, I mean, this movie would have been cool to see on a big screen, but at the same time, these kind of movies, I feel like, end up having their life on cable anyway. So, I mean, why not just shoot it straight to Netflix? The, the Russo brothers are trying to break out of the mold of just being the, you know, the Avengers guys, and uh, I think it's like the best non-awards kind of movie that Netflix has released. So, yeah, it's a three-star movie. Well, and, and the Russos have have tried to do that with a couple different projects. Like, last year they had 21 Bridges with Chadwick Boseman um, as kind of a similar, we're going to produce this and try to put it out. Um, but that got a theatrical release, and honestly, it probably would have done a lot better if it went the route of, of Extraction and just went straight to Netflix. Um, Todd, what did you think about The Last Shot? Did it Did it add to it, or did it ruin everything? I don't think it ruined it. I mean, I mean, it, it's left so you don't really know because it's so blurry. But I mean, I think that's why I was saying it. I mean, it's I mean, Sequel. Jason Bourne is a decent comparison, right? I, I think it is. Yeah, I I thought I I was thinking it definitely took some stuff from Jason Bourne, in uh. But it's also Rambo. If a Rambo was modern day, like that, I mean, that's another. I don't know. It was it was a hybrid of a lot of movies, but. I think it's put together by these really impressive stunts and fight sequences, and that's not something that really is normally on my radar. But I mean, it was it was super violent, and oh, yeah. I thought I mean it it really made it I mean it made it really cool. All right, well it's a it's twice approved here. We can't go thrice approved because Zach didn't like it. Um, I do have a little word from Adam. Adam uh, wanted to have his two cents in, even though he's not here for the uh, for the podcast today. So he sent me a, a little mini review of Extraction here. He said it was totally a cartel version of John Wick. They established a very fascinating world that I wouldn't mind seeing more from. The action was fantastic and a lot of fun. Three stars. So Zach, you're definitely in the minority here. Oh well, you're. you're I mean, that is not surprising at all. Like that, that review from Adam is one hundred percent predictable. I was expecting more from Todd, especially Todd's criticism of nineteen seventeen that it felt like just an extended, uh, you know, first person shooter. That's the way I felt about this movie. Like oh, it, it is, but I mean, I still give that three stars too. I don't think nineteen seventeen is any deeper in story than this is. I mean, it's the same same kind of thing. I disagree with you there. I think nineteen seventeen is a completely different movie and like a masterpiece but just because it's just because it's in a war setting that's that's the only difference and i don't think that makes it a better story well it's actually trying to do something more too i don't know okay eh. all right well uh it's on netflix so it's easy to find it's easy to it's easy to uh easy to watch um if you've been on netflix at all the last couple days i'm sure you've seen it as it pops up at the top of your screen just like tiger king did for like two or three weeks there but um yeah it's the number one thing on netflix right now um and if you can figure out the pro- the, the plot hole with the money please tell us because i'd like to figure that out i could i i was lost in the movie it didn't make sense to me i'm pretty I'm sure i'm pretty movie. sure he was trying to keep some for himself yeah that that character okay. was just if, bad and there were some times where the dialogue was hard to li- hear either also but it if just... you had if you could give me like a 20 uh question quiz on this movie i'm not sure i could pass it 
But that action sequence was pretty good. I mean, that that's that's worth oh, that was worth cool. the price of admission right there. Well, I'll go watch Chow Yun Fat stuff from the late '80s. Then you essentially get the the gist of it. But whatever. Or or a Jason Bourne movie. Sure. Yeah. Anyways, all right. So that's Extraction. Uh, if you listen to me and Todd, go check it out. If you want to be wrong, listen to Zach. Um, let's move on into. Uh, it's time for our spotlight segment. Spotlight. And uh, for our spotlight segment, this podcast, we are doing another Mount Rushmore. Uh, and we're focusing all this year, uh, we're focusing on different aspects of the decade that was in the 2010s. Um, we planned on doing this before we ended up like in quarantine and not being able to see anything. And I'm kind of glad we did because it's given us a lot of things to talk about. Um, again, we're only in April and we're probably going to run out of topics eventually, but we're going to keep going and see how far we get. (laughs) But, uh, this, this week we are looking at Mount Rushmore. Our last time we did Mount Rushmore, we did um, the Mount Rushmore of supporting actor and actress performances that won Oscars um, in the 2010s. And this one, we're going to be doing the lead performances. So, best uh, Mount Rushmore of actor and actress winners at the Oscars. Uh, And so, the Mount Rushmore of performances. So, we're going to start with actor. And just to refresh everyone's uh, memory on who we're looking at, what performances we're looking at here, uh, we are looking at Colin Firth for The King's Speech, Jean Dujardin for The Artist, Daniel Day-Lewis for Lincoln, Matthew McConaughey for Dallas Buyers Club, Eddie Redmayne for The Theory of Everything, Leonardo DiCaprio for The Revenant, Casey Affleck for Manchester by the Sea, Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour, uh, Rami Malek for Bohemian Rhapsody and Joaquin Phoenix for Joker. So uh, let's see here, Zach, you're going to start us off here. We're all going to go through. We're going to give our our own uh, submissions, and then we're going to debate on who the fourth one should be. So Zach, you get to go first. Good. I think this was a really weak crop of actors. I agree. Uh, not to be a hater or anything. Um, there are only one and a half performances on this list that really stick out to me. So I'm glad I get the one. The other one, maybe I'll mention later, or maybe one of you will bring it up. It's like a borderline really great performance, but I don't know. The other eight, forgettable. Absolutely forgettable. The one unforgettable performance, the one that I'm going to choose, is Daniel Day-Lewis as Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln. That is an iconic performance. He's amazing in that movie. Uh, he it, it goes beyond mimicry because we don't really have like you know vi- uh, film evidence of Abraham Lincoln. And what's uncanny about it is that even though we don't have that filmic reference... It's, it's he is Abraham Lincoln. I mean, he, he he carries himself the way that we would expect him to. He does that flinchy thing with his voice. He is exactly what we would expect of Abraham Lincoln, and he's magnificent in it. He completely disappears in it. The makeup, it's almost uh, superfluous. Uh, he he embodies that role, and he carries that movie, and he's phenomenal in that movie. That is the one unquestioned great best leading actor performance of this decade. He somehow completely captures the essence of a man that we really have no footage of and know nothing about other than what we see in pictures. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. That, that would, that's my number one, too. Um, so, yeah, good pick. Todd. I had that number seven. What? Okay. <laughs> what? I have. Wow. The, the only one that really stood out to me, or I mean, I guess I, there's a couple, but the one that really did was Casey Affleck in Manchester by the Sea. 
And that is a, a role that is devastating, it's emotional, and it is something that really fits his skill set well. I also think he had the best, like, leading performance of the 2000s in, uh, in uh, The Assassins of Jesse James, but in this movie, I feel like if it would have gone to another actor, they easily could have given as good of a performance, but he was lucky enough to get the role, and because it is a, a meaty role, the emotional checkpoints, playing opposite Michelle Williams, it it's it, it's a performance that really got under my skin, and whether you think the movie's great or not, I mean, his performance is undeniably amazing. Yeah, it's definitely one of those performances of subtlety in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's it's very restrained. It would be on my top five of the decade. I agree. Like, there are really powerful moments, but it's it's like almost the total opposite of Daniel Day Lewis. It's all like withdrawn and like in, internalized. But he's really he is good in it. I just you know Denzel was better, but whatever. Yeah, see, I think that's part of the problem with this, is we can go through and say, okay, <clears throat> this performance should have won. So, right. <laughs> for like every single year. Um, okay, so we got Daniel Day-Lewis, we got Casey Affleck. Oh, who am I going to go with? I... I'm going to go with Matthew McConaughey for Dallas Buyers Club. Um, I think... This kind of became iconic simply for it being Matthew McConaughey, and he'd started to kind of make this transition into more serious work, more serious films, and this really was the pinnacle of him showing what he's capable of. Um, it was a, a really well-received movie at the Oscars, as it won Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor, and Jared Leto was on our, our Mount Rushmore of Supporting Actor wins last time. Uh, but yeah, I really, I, I think looking at what's left, I think his is probably the most, uh, the, the next most iconic. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go Matthew McConaughey, Dallas Buyers Club. I wouldn't use iconic for it. Iconic would be Walking Phoenix. Well, that, that's, I, I'd say that's going to career like follow him his it, Yeah. And, and yeah. he gave, well, and he gave a 2013 great was the peak of McConaughey. Yeah, he gave a great speech, too. Yeah, that was very much about being in the moment and kind of a legacy award a little bit, but also just Oscars trying to be trendy a little bit. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is a performance that it, it's in his wheelhouse. Wasn't wasn't a, a great deal of effort that probably went into it on his part. Except um, losing weight. Yes, I guess my my subtle hot take is I actually think he's better in that movie than Jared Leto is, but Ooh. He, but neither deserved it. <laughs> no, I don't think either deserved it. But I I do think he's he's decent in that movie. It, I mean, th- there are worse people from this decade, which maybe leads us into the next part. All right, so let's let's get into. We got to pick a fourth here. Um, who do we want to go with? Well, can we start by cro- crossing off people? Yeah. Rami Malek, not happening. No. Not not in this universe. What, what makes uh, me sad about the Rami Malek win is the fact that Rami Malek won single-handedly ruined any shot Taron Egerton had this year of getting nominated for Rocketman. I, I, think, I think he gets a much more serious look. That's not true. I think he gets Rocket a much Phoenix more serious look. was nominated the year after Jamie Foxx won. I mean, it's not... He gets a much. It's, it's not a death sentence. Yeah, but it, 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 those it these films release. were so so similar, though. I mean, Walk the Line and Ray, yes, but and and maybe Walking Phoenix has a shot of winning for Walk the Line if Jamie Foxx had just won for Ray. But it, it nobody was beating Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, it's true. 
Rami Malek is this decade's crash. If it, what what this decade, it, it's it's crash. It's what people will say ten years ago. How could they have given that an Oscar? How that did makes he no win sense. for we, lip we'll syncing? Explain. This is this is what I still understand. How does he win for lip syncing? That entire the movie was a cultural phenomenon for like months. <laughs> it was seriously. It was... Everybody watched that movie. Everybody loved that movie somehow. Can we say his performance was iconic? <sighs> I, I think I think the best part about his performance in a, was in the, the wrong way. The first. I I think there are like three movies on this list that I think everybody has probably seen, and one of that's one of them, right? Yeah, I, I and so I I think the most like the best part of his performance is the first image that was released from that movie of him as Freddie Mercury, and I went, oh man, he looks just like him. That and yeah. It's it's funny because I really I, I think Daniels I gave this I think I gave true I think I gave this a three star a three star rating and I almost want to lower it just simply because of how much everybody loved it like I thought it was good I think it was great but how much everybody loved it I don't know that's one that's not going to age so well. it's the blind side yeah okay can we also take off Gary Oldman and his fat suit and makeup that that's not happening right. Yeah, I I I enjoyed that movie. I enjoyed his performance, but it was definitely no, a co- it was movie. a career win. Like it was a career achievement. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay with taking win. that off. Yeah. Um. So my probably, my half great. Oh, go per, ahead. Per, okay, so I said one half. My half great performance. I think this was a really good performance. Is Leo? I I thought he was really really good in The Revenant. He carries that movie. Uh, physically a demanding role, probably not his most iconic role, not the role he's going to be remembered for, borderline legacy win, but I didn't really have a problem with it when he did win. Yeah, I was going to say... Because it, I, he, he probably was the best that year in that category. It's Leo's scent of a woman, right? It, it's, it's yeah. let's give him the win, finally. It's nowhere near his best performance. It's nowhere near his most iconic. It's not what he's going to be remembered for, but at least we can now say Oscar winner Leonardo DiCaprio. Um... Which, I mean, might make it worth worth saying here. I think another one we could cross out probably is Eddie Redmayne. I haven't seen it. Who kind of, Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's good. He And, I mean, he does a great job portraying Stephen Hawking in it. But I think it's similar to Rami Malek where he just kind of got swept up in the momentum of the season. And Well, it was another physical performance, uh, similar to Leo. But, I mean, he's not Leo, so... Yeah. And and I'm trying to remember who did he beat that should have won? Michael Bradley Keaton. Bradley Cooper. No. Or Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton was the front runner the entire well, season. You're saying Bradley Cooper for American mm-hmm. Sniper? Yeah, he would have gotten my vote. He was great in that movie. Nah, it it, it was Michael I, Keaton's I would probably award give it to Steve to, Carell. It was it was Michael Keaton's award to lose and then Eddie Redmayne came out of nowhere and took the last month of the award season. Um I mean, I would. I'd like to just throw out. I mean, I love the artist and Jean Dujardin, but talk about someone who comes out of nowhere to win an Oscar and then goes back to nowhere. <laughs> yeah, he he. Uh, he's he, in the he, Wolf of Wall Street. That was he it. Yeah, Murray Abraham did. Yeah, yeah. He he he. And it's a it's a great performance. I mean, being able to pull off a. I mean, was it helpful the fact that he couldn't speak English that he. That he um, did a silent movie and was able to win an Academy Award for it. I don't know. But um, I love the movie, but I don't know if that win ages very well. I would say, I'm saying Leo or Colin Firth as the fourth one. Todd, what do you think? My next two highest rated are 
Joaquin Phoenix and Colin Firth. I I mean, Joaquin Phoenix, I feel like, had five performances this last decade that are all decade-worthy, and that, I mean, that may not be his absolute best one, but it's still, he's still crazy and breathtaking to watch. And Colin Firth, I I, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of the movie, but it's hard to picture anyone else playing that role. Yeah. Even though he probably should have lost, too, but it doesn't, I, I still have him ranked pretty high. Yeah, you probably you got Jesse Eisenberg winning. Well, yeah. Well, I that, that's that's kind of undeniable. I feel like, but yeah, that, I was, that th- was a tough year. I don't think Colin Firth or or uh, Walking Phoenix are that impressive in their movies. Todd, <laughs> what do you think of Leo? I'm I'm fine with I'm fine with giving it to Leo. I think we need to give it to Leo. I mean, just the fact that that he won. It's. It, if you're making a Mount Rushmore 2010 Best Actor wins, you have to talk about the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio won his Oscar this decade, right? I mean, and this is not a great... It's not a great group of performances, but he was solid in that movie. It's not like anyone's going to say he was bad in that movie. Yeah. As opposed to Rami Malek or, you know, uh, uh, Gary Oldman or arguably, you know, John Dujardin. I don't know. When you get outacted by a dog, though, it probably means you shouldn't win an Oscar. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's Leo. I think we just gotta say it's Leo and go with it. So we got Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, Casey Affleck, Matthew McConaughey, and Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, Adam participated in our last Mount Rushmore. He wanted to give his two cents, and his lineup looks very similar to ours. Uh, he's got uh, Leo, McConaughey, Affleck, and Joaquin Phoenix as as his fourth. So... So just one off of what he would put as his Mount Rushmore for Best Actor. Okay, let's get into Best Actress now, which I think we could, I'm, I'm going to argue, might also be fairly weak. I think the supporting categories had much more to work with than the than the leads did this decade. So uh, who we're talking about here, we've got Natalie Portman for Black Swan, Meryl Streep for The Iron Lady, Jennifer Lawrence for Silver Linings Playbook, Kate Blanchett for Blue Jasmine, Julianne Moore for Still Alice, Brie Larson for Room, Emma Stone for La La Land, Frances McDormand for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Olivia Coleman for The Favorite, and Renee Zellweger for Judy. Zach, where are we going? Okay, I have not seen Judy, so I, I have nothing to say about Renee Zellweger. Um, but uh, I would also agree with, with Terry's sentiment. This is a pretty weak selection. Oh, gosh. Ugh, it's 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 really hard. Um, I guess I don't know. Um, I, uh, I'm gonna go Olivia Coleman for the favorite. My only reservation with her in that movie is it's it's arguable if she's really the lead in that movie. I think you could maybe classify her as supporting. However, if you just look at her performance just from her time on screen, she's really good in the movie. Um, is she, uh, you know, embodies that role really well. Uh, she's funny. She has a lot of pathos. Uh, we feel bad for her while also kind of laughing at her with how ridiculous she is. And she's got sort of the paranoia and the, the 
mental sort of cognitive declines. Um, it's a really juicy performance. Um, so again, you know, the threshold for greatness, uh, you know, she had a lot of good stuff to work with. She was working with other great actors and a great director in what I thought was a really, um, a movie that borderline probably would have gotten my vote in 2018 for best picture. She's excellent in it. Uh, a weak, weak selection, but I think I got to go with her. I mean, it could have been weaker if Glenn Close had won for the wife, so. That's true. <laughs> she It was probably the, it had to be the best uh, Oscar moment for best actress this decade, right? I her, agree. Her speech was awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, best, best moments were what? I mean, she thanked Lady Gaga. Yeah, yeah. That and then like Jennifer Lawrence tripping her way up to the, up to the stage and, and uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Todd, who are you going with? I'm going with Natalie Portman. I, I feel like that is a a performance that is really difficult. Like you, you, you sign up for a Darren Aronofsky movie to do something you've never done before, and she is insane. She is. It's a physical performance, an emotional performance, and I. Natalie Portman proves that she is one of the best actresses of her generation, and she won because of that. I guess I don't know. She she's amazing. I think it's one of the best performances of the decade overall. Yeah, that was my number one. Yeah, and that was low-key my number one, too. I just didn't want to talk about it. I figured I'm not as big of a fan of the movie as either of you are, so. Yeah, but I, I concur. That was in... That has to be on the Mount Rushmore. Was that in my... It was in my, like, top five of the decade, yeah. Black Swan was. Okay. Uh, gosh. Hmm. Um. Not a whole lot left, Harry. Yeah. Have you seen all of them, Terry? I've seen them all, yeah. Okay. Un- unlike the supporting seen ones, I've seen all the all the leads. Uh, is Renee Zellweger actually good in Judy? She is. She is very good. So it was a justified Oscar. She, she's the movie. Um, I mean, you could compare it... <clears throat> I, I guess you could kind of compare it to, like, Meryl Streep and Iron Lady, where it's a mediocre movie, but an amazing lead performance, where she just finds a way to completely embody the character an iconic character, uh, just carries the film. Um, and actually, actually, now that I think about it, it was, it was better than okay. I, I think I gave it three and a half stars. I actually really liked that one. Um, yeah, I was debating going with her. Uh, I'm down to her or Frances McDormand. Um... I'm I'm gonna go Frances McDormand for three billboards. Zach, I know you're not the biggest fan of the movie, but she is because I have Judy number ten. So okay, <laughs> she's a powerhouse in that movie, and just as she is in every movie. But when she's given when she's given the lead and is able to just just take over, she's incredible and one of the best actresses that's working right now. The, the issue is she just rarely ever gets the lead. But she carries this movie in a similar way to how she carries Fargo, even though Fargo is such a completely different character. Like, polar opposite characters, but she carries the movie in a similar way. So, I'm going Frances McDormand in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. 
Yeah, and I feel like that would be sort of a consensus pick. Like, I think most people, having watched the, those 10 performances, would probably put Frances McDormand on their list as well. I, I can't totally disagree. I, I didn't. I thought she was the best part of that movie, so I never really had an issue with her winning. Yeah. All right, we need a fourth. Todd apparently hates Renee Zellweger. <clears throat> um, I just didn't really like the movie. I mean, she's fine, but I, I'm... I wouldn't have put her in the top couple in that category. Would you agree that it's kind of a similar thing to, like, Meryl Streep and Iron Lady? Yeah, sort of. She's the next bottom for me, yeah. so I wouldn't really consider her either. I know a lot of, I'm I'm not a huge fan of Blue Jasmine, but I know a lot of people love Kate Blanchett and that. Um, I would say if you're going to pick for a fourth one, you got to pick one of the, like one of the breakout stars winning their Oscars. So you got to go either Emma Stone, Brie Larson, or Jennifer Lawrence. I would say Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that it, the way that you sort of characterize, like 2013 was the year of McConaughey, 2012 was the year of Jennifer Lawrence, and she's good in that movie. It's debatable whether she's a lead actress in that movie, I think. Um, probably not her best work. But she was very memorable at that Oscars. And there was that George Stephanopoulos interview afterwards where she flirted with Jack Nicholson. That she, that she was awesome when she did that. Of those three, my pr- favorite performance is probably Emma Stone, but I would have no problem going with Jennifer Lawrence. Like, it, it's it's an iconic, an iconic Oscars Oscar moment. Role. What? She had the Oscar role of the three of them, too. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's an iconic Oscars moment. It's an iconic Oscars uh, character, um, and and it was it was kind of her breakout role, even though she'd already been nominated for an Oscar earlier in the uh, just a couple years earlier. So Jennifer Lawrence, let's do it. Sure. So we got yeah. uh, Olivia Coleman, Natalie Portman, Frances McDormand, and Jennifer Lawrence. Um, Adam's list. It's, okay, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Okay, I have a question after Adam's. Okay, list. so okay. Adam's Mount Rushmore. He went Natalie Portman, Brie Larson, Olivia Coleman, and Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore. It was definitely a, a career achievement Oscar. Uh, yeah, can, can we talk about Julianne Moore for a second? Yeah. I feel like the reason I could not possibly put that role on my list is because. She she's done like at least twenty better performances in the movie, maybe thirty better performances in that movie. That movie is like the most bland, like sleepwalking performance ever. And she's like okay in the movie. It's not even. A, I think I gave th- thumbs up to the movie, but like you're telling me that the same actor who was in you know Far from Heaven and Safe and Boogie Nights and all these like wonderful roles, you know, it, even even the most recent uh, movie she was in, um, what was the one where she was. Uh, uh, Gloria, uh, Gloria Bell. Was that it? Gloria Bell. Gloria Bell. She was like so much better in that movie than she was in uh, um, Still Alice. So I don't know. It's just that that is giving me a bias. I mean, yeah, I you you could say that's it's kind of similar to. I mean, we talked about in a similar way about Leo, but Leo we is actually good in The Revenant too. I think of the twenty movies we just mentioned, I think you could say that Still Alice is probably the most forgettable. Of the twenty or movies, the least seen. What? The least seen movie. The least probably. seen for sure. And and uh, yeah, 
which is saying something, considering the Iron Lady and Judy are also on this list. Well, you know, what's funny is you have, in the actress category, you have films like that where they don't get much attention except let's give the actress a win. Like, you've got Iron Lady in there, Blue Jasmine, Still Alice, Judy, um, that just kind of come out of nowhere and, all right, we'll just we'll give it this, and that's it. Where all of the, I mean, pretty much, was it all of the, act, yeah, all of the actor winners were for Best Picture nominees. What you also got to look at is the Best Actor winners, there's eight real-life characters there, so that automatically gives it a more meaty role. And there's, like, what, two? I think there's two in the Best Actress category. Maybe three. Yeah, yeah three. I think what, Terry, you're pointing to is to some sort of systematic sexism a little bit in the way that the studio system works, which I would, be, I would totally be on board with. I would agree with you, except for the fact that you could look at some of these individual races from these years for the Best Actress and not the right person won. I mean, I, there are just some, cl- I, I think, pretty clearly some years where, like, it was the wrong actress that won. But but overall, I would agree with you, though. Like, you know, obviously Still Alice is not, you know, it, it doesn't quite have the appeal of something like, uh, you know, um, the history or the theory of everything. Well, and, and it almost felt like, you know, let's, Oscar voters, that may, is. maybe it, in the actress category, they were looking, let's find a good performance, no matter the movie, where in the actor category, it seems like they're much more likely to find the best performance in the best movie. So, it's just interesting how, how it works out differently there. All right, so we've got our our, uh, our Mount Rushmore's. Tell us what you think uh, on on Twitter. We'll, uh, I'll put those up as a poll. I haven't really done that recently, but I'll do that with this one of uh, which ones uh, we got right. What was your favorite of the, of the four that we picked, or um, would you have picked something different? All right, let's move into power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, let's move about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. And our power rankings for this time are also going to deal with the entire decade. Uh, Todd won our game last time, so Todd got to pick our category. So Todd... Uh, what uh, aspect of the 2010s are we looking at with our top five? Uh, we're going with the best ensemble cast of the 2010s. Uh, that's always a category that I, I like to do in my own awards, and, and you can look at it a lot of different ways, and that's going to also make our discussion kind of interesting. And I know, like, the, the SAGs go for, like, the best collection of performances, kind of, a lot of the time, and sort of almost, uh, like, geared toward their favorite movies. And the Critics' Choice go for the most impressive list of actors in the movie. Like, I remember they had Ocean's 12 nominated for their Best Ensemble Cast in 2004. Or you could go with, like, cast chemistry kind of thing. And that's sort of the way I look at it a lot more. But uh, you you really could read this a whole bunch of different ways, and that'll be fun to to hear. Yeah, this was a really fun uh, category to look at, and I'm interested to see what directions we go in here. Uh... Todd, you pick the category. Why don't you go first? Okay, number five, I have Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master because it is a movie that is filled with just explosive performances. Uh, I think it's the it has the best acted scene of the entire decade and maybe of the last two decades. And it's really actors digging into characters that are unlikable, but it, it's gritty acting. And Paul Thomas Anderson's casts are always awesome. 
and impressive, but uh, this, I think, has more individual great performances than any other of his movies. You know, Joaquin Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, Rami Malek's in there, along with uh, Jesse Plemons, Laura Dern. It is a, a, an amazing cast of character actors, and it, I, I think it's some of the best acting of the decade. That's a good pick. That's a good pick. I, I haven't... I only saw that movie recently, but, uh, yeah, it's definitely got a great cast. All right, I'm going to go next. Uh, Number five on my list. So as I looked at this, one of the things I thought of was um, when you think about the movie, um, you think about the ensemble, right? It's it's not like, oh, that was was the so-and-so movie, right? That, That was... That was the, the, the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, or that was the, who, you know, Chris Hemsworth movie with Extraction. No, you think of, oh, that was a movie that had so-and-so, 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 and so-and-so in it. And because they carry the, they share the load, they carry the movie together, and that's what, uh, what you think about. One of the things I noticed as I made my list is most of the memorable, I think all of the memorable ensembles on my list are from the second half of the decade. Like the the um, the furthest one back is 2016 on my list, which I don't I just find interesting. Um, I have some other ones that wow. were in honorable mention. Yeah, they, that's just where the where the the um, memorable ones came. It was it was interesting. Um, I was really debating on what was going to be the fifth one on my list, but I had to go with this one just because it's different. I don't think anybody else is going to talk about it. Uh, number five on my list is 2016's Nocturnal Animals. Um, I thought this was, this was an amazing cast and it's one of those, like I said, it's one of those where, um, you, when you think about the movie, you think about everyone in it. You think about Jake Gyllenhaal, you think about Amy Adams, Michael Shannon, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Isla Fisher, Army Hammer, uh, even Laura Linney sneaks in there as Amy Adams' mom. Um, I mean, this was a great cast. Uh, everyone gave outstanding performances when you could actually get, Isla Fisher into a movie playing like a dream sequence version of Amy Adams. Um, that's pretty awesome. Uh, you had you had Aaron Taylor Johnson win a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor, and then the Oscars nominate Michael Shannon instead uh, because both performances were worth being recognized. And Jake Gyllenhaal easily could have been nominated for Best Actor because he's absolutely insane in this movie too. Um, it is it is a true ensemble cast, and I love the movie at, for all of its quirks and just eccentricities but it's got a powerhouse cast full of powerhouse performances so i had to mention it so nocturnal animals is my number five i did not expect that pick that's awesome (laughs) terry i think that was the the best 60 second take you've ever had on this podcast that was a phenomenal pick i i didn't even think about that movie but the way that you sold it is exactly right like you're right i don't think about it as a jake gyllenhaal movie or an amy adams movie like that cast is extraordinary and like i had even forgotten that laura linney was in it that that you are absolutely right about that that is a 100 agree great great choice i was looking at the, that should that should be your number one i was looking at the cast list michael sheen even sneaks in there with a random performance too which I don't even remember because it's just so chock full of great performances. 
thing. And, like, you don't think about it as a particularly, like, well-acted movie. I mean, it is a well-acted movie, but you don't think about it as the... You, you, at least I think about the movie more as, like, uh, narratively it does structural things that are really ingenious and it has this very dark tone. I don't always jump to the performances in that movie, but, but they are really freaking good. And it's a Tom Ford movie, so you also think about the cinematography, you think about the visuals that, it, that come out and the snapshot portraits that he creates. But, yeah... It, it's so brilliantly acted. One of the one of the more forgotten movies of the last decade, I would say, that was just really stinking good. Absolutely. All right, Zach, number five. I mean, I'm almost embarrassed to go after that. That was that was a great take. <laughs> maybe that should have been my wow. number one. I maybe it should be, but I'm, <laughs> it's my number five. All right. Wow. Uh, film film fans, take note. That was that was a great take. Okay, so when I thought of this list, I thought of the last sentence in Roger Ebert's review of Sideways, which is one of his best reviews, and he said, The characters are played not by the first actors you would think of casting, but by actors who will prevent you from ever being able to imagine anyone else in their roles, which is a perfect way to describe Sideways, by the way. Uh, so I tried to think of um, movies that didn't always have the A-list cast, because I feel like that's sort of low-hanging fruit to go, like, you know, the Knives Out route. I mean, yeah, they had a huge budget for cast, and they're, they're great, but they're all, like, recognizable people. So um, I went with movies that didn't always have a clear one-person protagonist, but a big cast and lots of small, uh, rich roles for pe- maybe people you didn't recognize. And so my number five was uh, Kelly Reichert's Certain Women from 2016. This had a really awesome cast, but it's not necessarily people that you'd recognize. The main three roles are played by Laura Dern, Michelle Williams, and uh, Kristen Stewart. And those are obviously recognizable actors, and they're great in the movie. But the movie is also littered with these really small performances by people that you may not recognize. I mean, Jared Harris is in the movie, James Le Gross, uh, Renee Aubergenois, and then my best supporting actress for 2016 was Lily Gladstone. It's it's a um, you know it's a movie that has three it's three separate stories that are somewhat interconnected. So um, in that sense, it's very much an ensemble piece because it, again, it's not based on one powerhouse character, but uh, all the actors complement each other really well, and uh, it you know it's just it, the great little performances throughout the movie. So. Hard to imagine anyone else playing those roles. Never seen that. That's movie. a good one. It was uh, I don't know that that wasn't one that I really considered, but I I do I do appreciate the pick. I I mean, going after that nocturnal animals pick, I wasn't gonna ever beat that, but you know, I tried. Damn, that was a good pick. <laughs> Jealous. <laughs> All right, Todd, number four. For number four, I actually have the winner of the best uh, ensemble cast at SAG last year, and that is Parasite, because I feel like that might be the most believable group of performances that I saw in a movie the last ten years. I, I think the cast is uh, is perfect in every role. I was unfamiliar with basically every actor other than Kang Ho's song, and, but they all leave an impression, and on any given day, I probably could make an argument for any of the like eight principal actors to have been worthy of a nomination. I, I mean, my favorite is Sodan Park, but I mean, I know there was like an online contingent like pushing for Yao Zhangzhou to to get nominated right at the last minute. It's a, it's a, it's a as ensemble of a cast as you can think of of the decade, and I think it was amazing. Obviously, Best Picture deserved, and uh, yeah, it's all because of that cast. Yeah, that's a great pick. Um, that that that's kind of a, an obvious one that that can be thrown in there. I didn't put it on my list, so simply it was, I felt it was a little. It was an easy one to put in there, so I didn't put it in. I don't know. 
<laughs> trying to be more creative this time, Terry? Try, trying. Well, we'll see how it goes. Uh, <laughs> my most creative pick apparently is my number five because compared to the rest of it, it well, it's not that creative. Okay. Uh, number four on my list. Uh, I'm glad Zach liked my last one because he's going to hate this one. Um, so when I think ensemble cast, I, I pick, I went with a pick here where, um, I mean, it's, it's Avengers infinity war. Um, Oh my God. Yeah, I know. Um, knew the MCU would be brought up at some point. I was just hoping it was Adam's list. I I have, I have to, I have to mention, and I'm mentioning infinity war because this is the one where they take like every character that had been portrayed over the last 10 years and give them all, some screen time give them all a storyline i mean this is like the epitome of an ensemble cast i mean we've seen that every one of these characters can carry their own movie but let's bring them all together and give them all uh their own time to shine um and i'm like i said i'm doing infinity war because endgame doesn't necessarily do it. it 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 focuses on you know the ones that remain and then bring in uh, the rest just for the very end. But this one actually focuses, it gives a little bit of time to the Guardians, and it gives a little bit of time to Tony Stark, then a little time to Captain America, and it goes through each each character. And then you have, you have really, it's a movie about Thanos when it comes down to it, too. So um, I had to mention one of them. I think Infinity War is the best example of a true ensemble as every every one of these big huge hollywood stars is willing to share time and share the screen and share the movie with everybody else so i had to put it on the list so number four avengers avengers infinity war but is there a great performance in it like what what's your what's you think the best performance in that movie? josh brolin the who you never see his face no but he's got the best performance Maybe Zoe Saldana, Tom Holland. As great of a pick as Nocturnal Animals was, that was as terrible a pick. <laughs> Maybe I should just switch them on my list. And... All right, all right. Nocturnal Animals is four. Avengers Infinity Wars five. No, 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 no. You can't do that. No, 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 no. <laughs> What's done is done. All right. It's done. All right, Zach, number four. Okay, number four for me is one that Todd's going to like because we'll, we're going to talk about this director later in this episode. But uh, I thought about big casts and lots of people showing up. So I went uh, Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac. You could call it one film. I'm going to go volume one and volume two. This is a movie that was outrageous when it came out. Um, it's four hours long of Charlotte Gainsbourg talking about her sexual escapades. And by the time you get to the end of the movie, you just feel bad for this woman. Like all the crap that she's been through, all the all the people she's had sex with. I mean, she it, it's truly like listening to Jenny Gump's like sexual uh, escapades throughout the 70s but magnified by Lars von Trier's utter like uh, nihilism right but this has a great cast in it I mean it was I think the introduction of people realizing how good of an actor Shia LaBeouf is you got Christian Slater you got an angry Uma Thurman who's shouting at Charlotte Gainsbourg for sleeping with her husband you got Selen Skarsgård who's in the movie and he's kind of like listening to her her recount these these stories um you've got uh you've got Mia Goth in one of her first roles and she's she's really good in the movie you got uh, Udo Kier you got uh, Jean-Marc Barr and Willem Dafoe and maybe my favorite and, and Jamie Bell and maybe my favorite thing about this movie is like the po if you look up the poster for Nymphomaniac um, they are uh, all given like uh, facial expressions of them uh, orgasming 
Sorry, kids. You can bleep that part out. But I, that was, that's like the way I think about that movie is that poster, you know? And it reminds me of what a great ensemble cast that was. So, yeah, it, it, it's a cool movie. It's worth checking out. Haven't seen this. His other stuff from this decade, uh, we shall see. We'll maybe talk about it later. But yeah, Nymphomaniac, it's kind of an awesome movie. All right, Todd. I like it. I'm going to put it on there, but I like it. <laughs> Todd, number three. My number three comes from 2011, and that is Margin Call. I feel like this is the definition of sort of an ensemble cast. It's an insane list of actors, and I, I feel like, I mean, since the movie is all basically dialogue, it are really forced to believe the performances in order to make the movie as thrilling as it is, and uh, it's such a good ensemble that you, you really don't, you can't pick out a, like a, the one best performance because they are all so believable, and I think they all have their moments to shine, and there's not really a main character even necessarily. And I, I just think that's a sign of a brilliant cast. I mean, you got, and there you got Kevin Spacey, Paul Bettany, Jeremy Irons, Simon Baker, Stanley Tucci, Demi Moore, all doing like some of their best work. But I mean, it's not something that everyone's anyone's ever going to highlight because they are lost in this just like perfect ensemble of characters. And I, I, I love that. That's a good call. That's a good call. That's why it's margin call. Yeah. It's not a margin call. It's a great call. In fact, I think that movie is like in our our site top five of that year. Like it, it's it's one that that all of us kind of universally really appreciated and loved. I'm looking it up here. What year was that one again? 2011. 2011. Yeah, it's our number three of that of that year as a site, which is impressive. Considering it, I mean, what it got an, a screenplay nomination. That was it. So shameful. Yeah. All right. Uh, number three on my list is another film from last year. Um, like Todd mentioned with Parasite, uh, this one a little more, you know, um, infinite budget type of ensemble cast, uh, and that's The Irishman. Uh, I wasn't the biggest fan of this movie, but it's kind of undeniable to consider, to realize that this was like an all-star cast of uh, of just legends that were all at the top of their game. Like, it's, it's one thing, and Zach kind of argued this with my last pick of Infinity War, yeah, you just put them all in the movie, it doesn't mean it's a great, great ensemble. This actually was a great ensemble of performances with... Um, I mean, you had Pacino and Pesci were nominated for this. You had, uh, and Pacino doing his thing is larger than life. Jimmy Hoffa, Joe Pesci, very, very subdued. Um, but then at the heart of it, you've got De Niro, who really is willing to give the, give the, the, the spotlight over to everybody else he's in a scene with. Um, you've got small roles from Harvey Keitel and Ray Romano, Bobby Cannavale, Anna Paquin, uh, Jesse Plemons again. I guess he's he. It's like required that Jesse Plemons pops up on each of our lists at least once, um, but it, it's it is an amazing cast and it is just it's just good. They they all do such an amazing job um, in in this movie and uh, and like I said, I wasn't as high on it. Like Todd Todd sees it as the masterpiece. They think it was was it in your top ten of the decade, Todd? No, it was in my top ten of the year. Top ten of the year, yeah. But um, it didn't quite get that high for me, but it's undeniable to, to that this was an amazing ensemble cast. So that's my number three. Yeah, I considered that one too, actually. Yeah. 
Zach, number three. Okay, we could not get through this list without a mention of a Coen Brothers film, and I'm gonna because they are the best directors with ensemble casts. And so for me, my number three is uh, what I consider their best film of the decade to be, which is Inside Lewin Davis. We've talked a little bit about this movie on the podcast already, but I mean, this is one great character performance after another. I mean, it's spearheaded by Oscar Isaac, who's great in the movie, but. Think about all these like little roles that are just perfectly cast, and like I don't I don't know how the Coen brothers do it movie after movie where they just see like the potential untapped potential in actors that you wouldn't think would be good for that role. Like I don't know anyone who would think that Justin Timberlake would make an ideal like kind of faux phony folk singer from the '60s, but he absolutely kills it in that role. And so does Carrie Mulligan, who's great in it. You know, Adam Driver as this you know guy from Texas who's kind of doing the like the cowboy thing in the folk movement. It's just great. Garrett Hedlund, uh, John Goodman is amazing in his few scenes in the movie. Uh, how about F. Murray Abraham? I mean, already been mentioned on this podcast, but he's like awesome in, in his one scene in the movie. So like, it's it it, it it's a spectacular cast, and um, I love this movie. And you can't go uh, without talking about the Coen Brothers uh, in in their ensemble cast. You know, I guess it's a movie about Lewin Davis, but all these other like like even even the Gore finds the professor and his wife that he shacks up with. You know, they are perfectly cast. I don't know the actor names who play them but like that that's perfect casting right there and i love that cast it's 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 an awesome movie that is spearheaded by an, a truly wonderful ensemble cast for a second i thought you were gonna say yeah, i was gonna mention F. Murray. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting i was gonna say f murray abraham you already mentioned him on the podcast but you know that proves that he, he had another great performance after was he better in inside loon davis or amadeus that's the real question we have to ask <laughs> Homeland. It's debatable. Homeland. Homeland. He's pretty good on Homeland. <laughs> I didn't know he was on Homeland. That's interesting. Yeah. So he he does have he does have a career still somehow. All right, Todd, number two. My number two takes me again back to 2011, and that is the four-person cast of Carnage. I mean, there's really only four people in the movie, and it all takes place in one room. And this is exactly the kind of like stage to screen adaptation that I, that I love. And it they take full advantage of it. it's like a witty kind of tragic, almost ridiculous script. And it's a group of actors I would never really picture being in a movie together, but it's hard to imagine any other way. It's Jodie Foster, John C. Riley, Kate Winslet, and Christoph Waltz. And if you're imagining what a movie would look like with them in it, it's hard. Uh, but uh, I can't, I can't imagine this movie any other way. It's Roman Polanski's one of his best movies the last 20 years, and uh, yeah, it's a great cast of chemistry, and they're they're just awesome. I've yet to see that one. Me too. I've never seen it. That's interesting. <laughs> you may need to fix that at some point. All right, number two on probably, my probably list. Trivia. Yeah, yeah. Number two on my list. Uh, this one is, uh, I mean, it feels like a Coen Brothers movie. Um, so there's, it's got that going for it. It's already been mentioned once. Uh, it may have popped up on a Mount Rushmore. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, uh, I think is another one that, I mean, when you think about it, I talked about how much Frances McDormand kind of owns the movie and, and carries it, but that doesn't mean that she isn't helped along the way. I mean... It, You've got three Oscar-nominated performances in here. Two of them are Oscar-winning performances. 
uh, with uh, Francis McDormand and Sam Rockwell. You've also got Woody Harrelson in there. Uh, and then you've got the, the small bit parts from people like Caleb Landry-Jones and Lucas Hedges. Um, even uh, you've got Peter Dinklage making a, an appearance in there. Uh, it is uh, John Hawks is in there. I, I just remember this was this felt like the cast, the way they were able to interact with each other and the way they, they worked together. It felt like a Coen Brothers movie. Um, and honestly, it felt more Coen Brothers than anything the Coen Brothers did this year in the way the cast was built and the cast worked together. Um, maybe that's because it was the only one that Francis McDormand did that felt like that. Uh, but uh, I, I had to put it on my list and uh, because it, it's such a solid cast. And as much as the, the lead deserved the Oscar, um, she wasn't alone in making this movie what it was. So number two is Three Billboards. It's a good one. It's a lot of a lot of great performances in that movie. Yeah. Zach. All right, my number two has already been mentioned, but I'm gonna echo a lot of the sentiments that have already been said, which is from 2011, J.C. Chandor's Margin Call. This is a spectacular cast. Um, I guess the main character in is is the Zachary Quinto character, and he's really good in the movie. He's sort of the straight man in the movie, so to speak. Um, boy, I, I, where to begin? Uh, Kevin Spacey is spectacular, even though we can't say that anymore. Uh, we have uh, some well, great monologues it. by... Well, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I, I don't want to say it anymore. Uh, Jeremy Irons. I mean, Jeremy Irons comes into this movie. He, Jeremy Irons, how can you compare? He's like, he's like the guy sitting... He's like the sixth man sitting on the bench who's just dying to get on the court and just, just jack up some threes. And every single three he takes swishes in because he is freaking amazing in this movie, okay? I mean, he belongs in like... He definitely belongs in The Wolf of Wall Street. In fact, part of, why, part of my reaction against The Wolf of Wall Street is that Jeremy Irons was not in The Wolf of Wall Street as the character he's in in Margin Call because he's just so great in it. Stanley Tucci, you know, he has that speech about building a bridge in West Virginia that I think is just a phenomenal speech. Uh, you got you got Simon Baker, who's great in this movie as a total phony. You got Demi Moore, who still looks freaking smoking at like 50, you know? You got Mary McDonald, who's in the last scene in the movie. She's in the last 60 seconds in the movie and she's great in it, okay? There is not a waste of performance. In fact, in the deleted scenes on the DVD, because I love this movie so much, there's a deleted scene with... Um, uh, Mamie, or, uh, excuse me, uh, not Mamie Gummer, Grace Gummer, uh, Meryl Streep's other daughter, and she's really good in it. So even the deleted scenes have good shit in them. This is just an amazingly acted movie. Uh, clearly would be my number one ensemble for the decade were it not for my number one, which I'll mention momentarily, but this is, this is a phenomenal movie. I mean, that's kind of the point of putting it number two, right? <laughs> well, th there are reasons why it isn't number one. There's reasons, look, I'll just shut up. <laughs> number two because I think my favorite something better at number one i mean <laughs> i think my favorite part, performance in margin call is simon baker and that that's kind of crazy considering that cast but i i think i think he there there's not an actor especially at that time that was more suited to do that role oh that's that is per like how about the scene where he's like shaving in the bathroom and the Penn badgley character is talking to him about like his life's ambition was to be a stockbroker to make all his money and like <laughs> simon baker just doesn't give a shit he just keeps shaving like puts the paper towel on his on his cheeks that's 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 a fun, that's a that's a great scene great acting and i can't imagine anyone else. that was the highest war in that movie when we when we do our deep dive when we do our deep dive on margin call i'm already calling simon baker as the highest war I like it. Man, I really need to see that again. 
he missed the boat, man. Yeah, apparently. Too busy with Avengers Infinity War. But, you know, <laughs> that's how you spend your time. All right. Todd, number one. My number one might be a kind of a more boring pick, but it was my first instinct when I thought of the category, and it, it, there's nothing that could top it, and that's Fences. Because I, I know that a lot of the characters were played by the same actors on Broadway, but it doesn't take away from like the emotional punch that these actors give. Every individual performance is great, and they really feel like real people. Even though there's like emotional flare-ups and stuff, it still feels really grounded and real. You, you kind of forgive the fact that like Russell Hornsby is the same age as Denzel, and he's playing his son, but that's because they're so believable and you actually believe <coughs> the, the cast. I think Viola Davis gives one of the best performances of the decade, and I, uh, Stephen Henderson, Giovanna Depo, McKelty Williamson, it's, it's a great cast, and uh, it's, it's one that, it, it really just feels like a, uh, like a real family and not, not, not like actors playing it, so Fences has to be number one. I know I'm the biggest fan of that movie on the website, but that's okay. And you're still okay with, with Casey Affleck over Denzel then? despite the fact that you just named it the best ensemble cast of the decade. Yeah, well, they I mean, they were the two best performances of the year. That's like criticizing Philip Seymour Hoffman or Heath Ledger. It's like, well, I mean, what am I going to do? All right. That's a, that's, it's a good was that the great Was that the greatest best actor race of the decade, Denzel versus Casey Affleck? That has to be, right? There's, there's not really one, else, one other one that comes to mind. That was the closest best actor race, for sure. Yeah, everything else is kind of decided going in. Well, was it, like, yeah, it, there Casey was like an inevitability of Eddie Redmayne kind of thing, but people still thought Michael Keaton had a shot. And yeah, neither John Dujardin against George Clooney was nah, a tight race. Like, like uh, Casey Affleck versus Denzel, that was like Mickey Rourke versus Sean Penn, you know, in 2008. Like, that, that was an epic Oscar race with two yeah, great performances. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I feel like that was more the Eddie Redmayne-Michael Keaton race, where you had one that was just the oh, this guy's finally going to get his Oscar, and then somebody else comes up and just takes it. I don't know. Anyways, number one on my list. All right, so when you think about directors who know how to direct ensembles, Zach mentioned the Coens, which are is an awesome pick. Um, but the other one that, that immediately comes to mind... Paul at least Thomas Anderson, me, I told oh, you. Yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson, too. The other one that immediately comes to mind for me is Quentin Tarantino. And the Russo brothers. Oh. Um, I, I, and I could have easily put, like, as I was thinking about it, it, I easily could have had, like, one, two, and three B. Tarantino movies, but number one on the list, I mean, it's gotta be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I mean, this is, the fact that he was able to take this gigantic cast, um, where every role in there is played by somebody you've seen or somebody you've heard of, and make it into this amazing, uh, this amazing movie that just gives this paints this picture of Hollywood at that time. I mean, it it really is this this generation's Pulp Fiction uh, in how it's able to to tell these these disjointed stories and bring it all together and make this uh, this great movie. Um, it, it's it's one of the most impressive casts, and I remember. I remember as they were getting ready for this and they kept on saying this person's going to be in it and this person's going to be in it and this person's going to be in it. It was one of those where you felt like it the more people it said were going to be in it, the worse it was going to be because that just is sometimes how it works is the more loaded the cast is, the the more the expectations get way way out of hand and the movie is terrible. That wasn't the case with like Once Bobby. Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. That wasn't the case with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and uh it was it was an amazing movie. It's an amazing ensemble, 
And and like I said, easily like two and three could have been uh, the Hateful Eight and Django Unchained. Um, and I mean, Hateful Eight. I mean, th- look at that ensemble cast. I mean, it's it's that group of people that eight, those eight people in a room the entire movie, and that's it. I mean that that was that was just as impressive. And I I mean I could have put that number one instead, but I only want to go with one per director. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's my number one. That's a great pick. So that means I have two 2019s, a 2018, a 2017, and a 2016 as my top five. <laughs> so so before this podcast, Todd and I debated which would be your number one. I said it was going to be The Martian. Mm-mm. And I said it was going to be, I don't remember. Boyhood. I think. Boyhood, yeah. Boyhood's in my honorable mention. Then I shocked you all with Nocturnal Animals. <laughs> yeah. I was a shocker. All right, Zach, number one. All right, well, Margin Call, what I meant, it was hard to explain, but Margin Call would have been my number one pretty clearly through the first uh, nine years and ten months of the decade until November 2019 when I saw a South Korean movie that I'd never heard of before called Parasite. And that was clearly the best acted movie of the decade. And it, I think it totally fits in the qualifications of what we mean by an ensemble cast. No one really sticks out. It's not, a, a, it's not like a singular performance-driven movie a la, you know, Gary Oldman or in, uh, you know, the Winston Churchill movie or Darkest Hour or, you know, something like that. Like, the, the performances are all, like, so amazing in this movie. And, um, like, actually, one of the performances that, that I think gets really underrated is Lee Jong-yoon as the housekeeper. She is amazing in this movie. And, she, I, like, she's one of my favorite characters, and I think that actress is so perfect in that role and um you know all of them park so damn should have won an oscar for this movie i mean she's we all know she's spectacular in this movie but song uh, kang ho and lee sun kyun amazing this movie the idea of this movie be, being remade in the, in the united states with mark ruffalo and tilda swinton is just vulgar this is a perfectly this, this ensemble cast will never be replicated and it's the definition of a perfect ensemble cast so i as much as i want to put margin call above it i can't it's low hanging fruit i know but it's clearly the best ensemble cast of the decade. We had two overlaps. That never happens. <laughs> That's true. Although now I'm thinking about nocturnal animals. I just yeah, I can't get that out of my head now. Uh, just redo the whole thing. And I, Burn I, it down. I should have Parasite on my list too. I, I heard so that yeah, they're making like an HBO miniseries of Parasite, right? Like that's the yep. that's the plan. And I heard the thing is that Bong Joon Ho had like like just like pages and pages and pages of story ideas and just different like deep dives into what's going on with all these characters and like but, why the housekeeper is all beat up when she goes back to the house right yeah yeah <laughs> and like and so like he's yeah. he's gonna do a mini series and explain all that because he's already got all the story figured out he just only had two hours to to do the to tell part of it so yeah I, uh, All right. I, I'm looking forward to that. Okay, Todd, give me some honorable mentions. Uh, I had the Meyerowitz stories. I think Noah Baumbach's another one, great one at uh, his ensemble cast collection. Uh, American Honey is one that I think has a great cast of people that you don't necessarily recognize, but they all give really believable performances, probably because they actually live in that world. And then I had The Hateful Eight, as Terry mentioned, and Django Unchained, uh, both 
great Tarantino cast. The Hateful Eight being more of like a play than it is a movie, and I, that's something that I am drawn to. Uh, her, I have, I, I think that is a, an amazing cast of people who all have like a section of the movie, all supporting Joaquin Phoenix, who is insane in that movie. Animal Kingdom and The Fighter were my other two, and both of those have just great casts that all give really good supporting performances, essentially. There's not really leads in those movies, and uh, they both qualify. Alright, I had, for my honorable mention, I had 12 Years a Slave was my number six. Um, I mean, that that's just a huge ensemble cast. In a similar way, I was thinking it's kind of like... Uh, Saving Private Ryan type of cast and that it's just got all these little bit parts that are just played by these memorable faces and in both of them one of them is Paul Giamatti um, Boyhood was on my list for honorable mention uh, First Man has a great ensemble I mean it's Ryan Gosling's movie yes. Claire Foy's amazing but it's an amazing ensemble too um, Knives Out I had to mention and then one that was kind of outside the box that I had to mention as on my honorable mention Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse I mean, if you're going to talk about an ensemble voice cast, um, that is, it, one, it's a great cast, and two, they all give such different performances. And, I mean, is there anything better than Spider, Spider-Man Spider Noir? So, film Noir Spider-Man, I mean, it's pretty great. So, uh, so that was my honorable mention list. Zach, how about you? Okay, uh, I was surprised none of us mentioned Spotlight. I sort of left that off my list because I figured someone would, would put it on It was on, on there, my long list. That's, I think, an obvious one. Uh, I had Disconnect, great ensemble cast there. Shoplifters, um, Everybody Wants Some. Um, I was I expecting that to be on your list. Yeah, a couple comedies, Crazy Stupid Love and Five-Year Engagement. Great ensemble cast in that movie. Uh, we mentioned this randomly on this podcast, but I actually had Patterson as one of my honorable mentions. I think that movie is beautifully cast. Um, I also went with M. Night Shyamalan's Split because of Barry, Patricia, Dennis, and the Beast. You know? <laughs> okay, that's the, it's the most traction I'm going to get out of that joke, so I, I'm, I'm done with it. I also had an honorable dismention for Lee Daniels' The Butler for the worst ensemble cast, but hey, you know, just throw that out there. And then finally, I had uh, Where to Invade Next because... It's all these different countries of the world that have universal health care instead of the United States, and they're much better than we are. So that's a great ensemble cast, if you ask me. I see what you did that there. Has... I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All right. Now let's see if we can guess Adam's list. This is our game we play every podcast that we do power rankings. Todd, what is our score right now? I am in the lead with 18 and a half. Terry has 12 and a half, and Zach is stuck on 11. Okay. All right. This one goes to 11. <laughs> you now have to say that every time until you're off 11. Okay, Todd, what is, uh, what is your prediction for Adam's list? I have number five, Parasite. Number four, Avengers Endgame. Number three, Drive. Number two, Boyhood. And number one, Manchester by the Sea. Okay, I have number five, The Fighter, number four, Mad Max Fury Road, number three, Twelve Years a Slave, number two, The Wolf of Wall Street, number one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Zach? Right. Oh, I had number five, Pain and Gain, number four, The Big Sick, number three, Inside Out, number two, I also had Mad Max Fury Road. I don't know why, it just feels like an I know, pick. right? <laughs> and then, I know. And then number one, I had The Hateful Eight. Okay. 
All right, here is Adam's list. Honorable mentions. He has Avengers Endgame, uh, The Irishman, uh. Bad Times at the El Royale, Blade Runner 2049, Nocturnal Animals. Hey, there we go. Uh, now, Blade Runner 2049 is a good pick. That is also in, like, almost a Nocturnal Animals type pick. Like, you don't think about the cast in that movie, but that is a really well-cast movie. I'll give you props, Adam. All right. He also has The Jungle Book, Inside Out, Top 5, This is the End, Zero Dark Thirty, Lincoln, and The Social Network. That's his honorable mention. So we each have one. No, Terry didn't have an honorable mention on there. No. Zach and I did. Yeah. All right. Number 5, okay. Spotlight, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Mark Ruffalo, John Slattery, Stanley Chuchi, Billy Crudup, and Leah Schreiber. Schreiber is by far his favorite part of the film. Number 4, Fury. Brad Pitt, Shia LaBeouf, Logan oh, Lerman, John Bernthal, Michael Pena, Jason Isaacs, that, and Scott Eastwood. We should have had that. Come on, man. I know. That was I almost an put obvious that on my Adam list. Pick. LaBeouf was in my top five for sporting this year. I love this film and cast so much, and they really des- uh, really delivered. I actually don't like that film that much. Uh, number three, Contagion. Matt Damon, Kate Winslet, Lawrence Fishburne, Marion Cotillard, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Ellie Gould, Brian Cranston, John Hawks, and many more. This movie is simply fantastic, and the cast, I feel, really elevated the material. Uh, number Who two... Who just watched that movie last week? Like, you know, just to be just be trendy. Yeah. Number two, uh, this is one I'm surprised nobody else mentioned. Place Beyond the Pines. Uh, Ryan Gosling, Bradley Cooper, Eva Mendes, Dane DeHaan, Ben Mendelsohn, Ray Liotta, Rose Byrne, Mahershala Ali, Emery Cohen, Bruce Greenwood. A forgotten film of this decade proves to be so intriguing. Also another film proving that Ryan Gosling killed it this decade. And number one, The Wolf of Wall Street. Leonardo DiCaprio, Jonah Hill, Margot Robbie, Matthew McConaughey, Kyle Chandler, John Favreau, Rob Reiner, Jane Bernthal, Ethan Supley, Jean Dujardin, and Jordan Belfort. An outrageous film with a cast that looked to be having a blast. And he, then he says one of the true winners of the decade is movie 43, but it's just that bad. <laughs> so. Beautiful. Okay, well, I think I win. So you have The Wolf of Wall Street? I have The Wolf of Wall Street. I can't believe we didn't have Manchester by the Sea or Parasite. Those or were like Hateful his, Eight. His, his, some of his best movies of the decade. Did he just completely ignore Tarantino? Yeah. Did he forget like about all that? of you did. <laughs> I had two of him on my honorable mention. Yeah. All right. So Terry wins. I win. Thirteen and a half now. I mean, that's like that's like the most undisputed win we've had in a long time. I'll take it. Especially since I had, I'm going to be talking a lot here in the next part. So let's move on to uh, trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And before we get to our trivia game, we got to do our trivia reviews, and we got a lot of them this week, uh, because our last trivia game somehow miraculously ended in a tie between Todd and Zach. So through a tiebreaker category. Yeah, even through a tiebreaker category. So the rule, or what was established as what needs to happen then is they each assign each other a movie, but they also also each had to assign me a movie. So I had to watch two movies for this. Um, and uh, yeah, so let's uh, let's get into this. So my first movie I watched for um, for this was assigned by Zach, and that was Blue Valentine, uh, the 2010 movie, which I was going to watch this year anyways as part of my anniversary uh, list, so I just watched it a little early. Um, it is uh, Ryan Gosling, Michelle Williams, um, and it kind of, like, 
a parallel tells a story of um, a couple falling in love and falling out of love at the exact same time. It kind of goes back and forth between the two. I mean, it felt like kind of a, a serious, um, like depressing, gritty version of 500 Days of Summer. Or, or it reminded me also of uh, there was a, an off-Broadway show that uh, came out with a movie sometime in the last decade called um, The Next Five Years uh, with Anna Kendrick in it. And it was a musical where it one scene was, at the, was when they met and the next scene was when they broke up. And then they just kept on going. One was moving forward in time, one was moving backward in time and doing parallel scenes until the, it ends with them in the middle of their relationship. Anyways... Um, Blue Valentine, it was really good. I really liked it. The performances by the two leads were amazing. Um, I kind of had a feeling, I couldn't help myself but think that throughout this this movie, that this movie was designed to be Michelle Williams and Heath Ledger, and, and Ryan Gosling just stepped in, um, because it just felt like it, that that role and that the chemistry that they had in, like, in Brokeback Mountain, it just felt like it needed to be Heath Ledger and was meant to, for him. But Ryan Gosling does an amazing job, too. Uh, I gave it three and a half stars. It's an amazing movie. Um, and uh, just, yeah, just a really a really solid movie, really moving movie. Um, yeah. It's good. It's I actually think that's Ryan Gosling's best performance. It, it's, it's a really good performance. But, I mean, like Adam said, Ryan Gosling killed it in the 2010s. I mean, he, he had he so many good performances. Um, I know I'm not supposed to have this reaction to that movie, but I actually think, like, drunken, borderline abusive Ryan Gosling is really funny in that movie. Like, if you take everything out of context in the second half of that movie, like, maybe put a laugh track behind it, a la Rodney Dangerfield and Natural Born Killers. Like, I bet that would be really funny to do on YouTube. Because he's, like, really funny. Oh, wait, you, you want to be a man? Talk about being a man! Then he hits the guy like that. I, I, that. You know, obviously that's, like, a shocking, horrifying scene to watch in the context of the movie. But out of context, yeah, it's, I think it's kind of funny. Yeah. But it, 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 My number six of the decade. I, I love the movie. Yeah, it, it's a good one. All right. Uh, then Todd had me uh, start to fill in one of my biggest uh, holes in my uh, in my film watching, and that was I finally watched The Terminator. 1984, iconic movie, and there's a reason it's iconic, because this movie is freaking awesome. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's never been better, um, and James Cameron shows just how much of a genius he is. Uh, I mean, just... Out of, out of his brain, kind of similar to what he did with Avatar, just out of his brain coming up with this entire world, this entire universe of, of what's going on in this alternate reality. And um, it, it's, it's so rich and so deep, and I could see how after this movie you just wanted more. I mean, just like Avatar, you just wanted to spend more time in this world, and James Cameron does a great job with that. Uh, it's four star movie. It's it's so good. I I'm I'm really excited to try and watch the rest of the rest of the series now, rest of the franchise. So Todd, thank you for and finally getting me around to watching the Terminator. Um, it took seven years to get the second one too, which is just tragic because the second one is one of the like legitimately greatest movies that's ever been made. So I'm excited for you to actually make your way through that franchise because I, I I love all but like one of them. And, and I mean. Some of the twists and turns you totally see coming, but it doesn't really matter because it's just it's just fun. I think my favorite part was noticing that in the first five minutes we get a small glimpse at Bill Paxton as just a punk kid with a purple mohawk, which was pretty awesome. Um, so yeah, 
Anyways, those were the two movies I had to watch. So uh, let's see here. Zach, what did you have to watch? Okay, I uh, yeah, I had to watch The House That Jack Built, which is the latest film by Lars von Trier. I was trying to think of a funny joke, like, could we call this, like, the film that Lars built? But I, that's not that funny. I was I, All day I was trying to think of a funnier joke than that, but that's the best that I could do. Oh, my God. Where do I begin with this movie? I mean, Todd said that we were making bets on I, I, I was going to either hate it or love it, and there's nowhere in between. He's absolutely right. There is nowhere in between for this movie. You either have to fully embrace what it is, Lars von Trier just hanging it all out there, with or without a kitchen sink, or just despise it. I'm kind of torn, to be perfectly honest, because I, I I was prepared to go on this podcast and talk about how much I hated it, because I did hate it. I mean, it was like, it was a horrible movie in every sense of the word, but I feel like that's a reaction to Von Trier more than the movie itself. However, I, the problem with this movie is that you can't separate them, because as you're watching this movie, it becomes very clear that Lars von Trier has no interest anymore in telling stories. All he's interested in is um, talking about himself and his own feelings about art, about killing, about women, about Nazis. And it's pretty clear that this is just basically an extended conversation he's having with himself. For someone who says that he hates Werner Herzog, I have no idea why Todd likes this movie. Like, this is the most Werner Herzog type movie ever because it is Lars von Trier essentially just giving his commentary to everything. It's not his actual voice, but it's, you know, the voice of Matt Dillon and uh, Udo Creer and, um, or excuse me, Bruno Gantz, who, by the way, going into this movie, I didn't know Bruno Gantz was, was the, the character of, um, of uh, Virgil, and I thought it was Martin Sheen doing, an, like, an Eastern European accent, <laughs> but... I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, it took, it took me like two times to get through this movie. It's just about, you know, this guy, Jack, who's an architect and he kills people. But really the more interesting part of this movie is the digressions, which it's the exact same thing as Nymphomaniac. It's, it's one of the things I hate that directors do when they do the exact same thing in their very next movie. It's kind of like what Tarantino, it's one of the reasons I can't totally embrace Inglorious Bastards because I feel like it's almost the same thing he's doing in, in Kill Bill Volume 2. But yeah, it's the exact same thing as Nymphomaniac. He's just talking to this off-screen sort of confessional <laughs> thing, and he does these digressions with old black and white clips of Glenn Gould playing the piano and animated bunnies. And then he has the nerve to show, he, when he talks about great art, he shows clips from his previous movies, like Melancholia and Nymphomaniac, and you're like, come on, dude, okay, get, get past the ego, okay? But then you realize it's Lars von Trier, and that's all he has left, because he's no longer a relevant filmmaker, okay? He's, his films get booed at Cannes, he's been exposed Exposed as someone who gropes his actresses and talks about how great Nazis were. This is all this guy has left, all right? He is like, he's like one of those like late 90s Clint Eastwood movies, like the one where he goes into outer space. Like this is all the guy has left, you know? He's, he's hit rock bottom. This is all he has left. So again, my reaction, I, I have to think about it in terms of Lars von Trier, not the movie. I thought the movie was 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 terrible. I mean, it, it, it's like laughably bad. It, it has, you know, no purpose. There, there's no real insight into... Um, um, uh, the serial killer because it's just Lars von Trier's meta commentary on everything. However, I will say the last 10 minutes were good and because they go in a completely different direction. It was not worth waiting that out th those two hours and 15 minutes for the last 10 minutes though. It, it was not worth it. But I will say I reluctantly have to admit the last 10 minutes were pretty interesting. That should have been the whole movie. It go it goes to a place Either you could never expect it or you totally expected it. I kind of totally expected it to go somewhere like that. But, man, I, 
Wow. I, yeah. Two stars, I guess. I don't know. Does the star rating even apply? <laughs> is this a film? I don't know what it is. That's what I said. I mean, it's, it's, you, there's no, there's no in between and you somehow found a way to make yourself I'm reacting to Von Trier, not the movie. The movie does, I guess, some interesting things. I'm so repelled by Von Trier at this point. But you can't separate the two. That's the problem. That's why people simultaneously booed and cheered this movie when it was at the Cannes Film Festival. I I understand their reaction now, but... You said he's irrelevant, and you had one of his casts in your top cast of the decade, so I don't think that's Well, okay, that's, that's true. Well, you know, you hate Werner Herzog, and you like this movie, so, you know talk about you know contradictions i think of this movie as if like if, if dexter was had zero soul and like or sense of humor like it, this is a desolate disturbing movie i don't think i don't think there's any there's any lightness in it and that but it's hard not to be compelled by it i mean i've watched it twice and i i, I was just as taken by it the second time or more so i think the real solution is terry needs to watch this movie oh god that's yeah, that's, that's the answer uh, Zach, please win trivia. Oh no, you're gonna make me watch it. Crap! I'm gonna end up watching this movie for the next podcast, aren't I? No matter who wins. <clears throat> All right. Maybe just the last 15 minutes. Maybe I'll spare you. All right, Todd, what'd you have to watch? Uh, I had to watch the 2014 Alain Gurati movie, Stranger by the Lake. Uh. So this guy Frank is a younger guy and he likes to go cruising in this like nude beach. He meets Henry, who is an older guy who's uh, divorced and wants to be by himself, but he is also pursuing this other younger guy named Michel, even though he knows he's kind of dangerous. It's got like a really deliberate pace, but it's kind of interesting to watch. The, there are like excessive unsimulated sex scenes and nudity. With, but it kind of takes itself seriously, so I guess that makes it not porn. I'm not really sure where the line is there. Um, it, it has some dark turns, and it kind of becomes like a late 70s thriller. It feels sort of more like a Italian movie than a French movie, and I'm kind of surprised that I actually enjoyed watching it. I give it three stars, and uh, I'm curious what Zach actually thinks of this movie. Yeah, I don't know. I've never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> so why did I watch it? <laughs> well, the original movie I wanted you to see, you didn't want to. You didn't want to see. So I said, okay. What was that? <laughs> the cook, the thief, his wife, her lover. Oh, because you not, Yeah, because I couldn't get it for free. Yeah, I I wanted to see Stranger by the Lake. I, you know, I thought it'd be a fun movie for you to talk about. I think Zach <laughs> is how are you going to react to it if you haven't seen it? I think Zach is watching that for the next podcast. <laughs> I know of it. I definitely know some. You know some scenes from it. <laughs> Some screen captures that went viral back in 2014. Oh, gosh. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into our trivia now. Uh, all right. I've, I've, got, I've got three categories here for you guys. Um, I, I was happy to host trivia again because I had too many ideas for the last one, and so now I actually get to do the other ones that I had. Um, these are three large categories that we're going to go back and forth. It is also focusing on the Oscars of the 2010s. Um, so looking at the last 10 years of Oscars, and we're going to look at three different categories here. Um, we are starting with uh, the list of actors, of male actors who received their first acting nomination in the 2010s. There are 37 names on this list. 
So actors who received their first acting nomination in the 2010s. We are starting with Todd. Uh, Colin Firth. No, not Colin Firth. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg. Sorry. That that was that was a good save there. That is correct. Jesse Eisenberg for the Social Network. Zach. Uh, uh, Rami Malek. Rami Malek is correct. Bohemian Rhapsody. Todd. Michael, Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton is correct for Birdman. Jean Dujardin. Jean Dujardin is correct for The Artist. Todd. Lucas Hedges. Lucas Hedges is correct for Manchester by the Sea. Zach. Uh, Jared Leto. Jared Leto is correct for Dallas Buyers Club. Todd. McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey from Dallas Buyers Club. Correct. Zach. Um... Uh, uh, sorry, uh, Mahershala Ali. Mahershala Ali is correct. Had a couple of them. Mark Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo is correct. Kids are all right. Was his first. Zach. Uh, Sam Rock. Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Had a couple. First was three billboards. Todd. Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy's correct. The Revenant. Zach. Mark Rylance. Mark Rylance. Bridge of Spies. Correct. Michael Fassbender. Michael Fassbender is correct. For Steve Jobs and others. Steve Carell. Steve Carell's correct. For Foxcatcher. Todd. She would tell Edgy Four. She would tell Edgy Four is correct for Twelve Years a Slave. Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston, Trumbo. Come on, Todd. Yeah. Um. Five. Four. Three. Two. One answer. Yeah, uh, I got nothing. He's got nothing. Zach, can you keep going? Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill is correct. Aaron Taylor Johnson. Uh, that is incorrect. He did not. He got the Golden Globe win, but he didn't get the Oscar oh. nomination. All right. Well, I still won. Yeah, who went first there? I, I completely forgot to keep track I of went score. First. <laughs> I went first. I went first because I said an, an incorrect answer. Oh, that's right. That's right. And then... Uh, so we tied. Yeah, so you, you tied out of that. And you got a total of 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. So it's 9 to 9. And... Oh, please don't. Please don't make that do, us do that with actresses. Oh, that's totally that what's going to happen next. So some of, oh here are the God. names that you guys missed. <laughs> you missed some big ones here. So Adam Driver, Andrew Garfield, Antonio Banderas just this last year. Barkat Abdi, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, yeah, Barkat Abdi. Forgot, totally <laughs> forgot about him. Bradley Cooper, Christian Bale, Daniel Kaluuya, Damien Bashir, Dev Patel, Eddie Redmayne, Gary Oldman, Hugh Jackman, J.K. Simmons. 
James Franco, John Hawks, Jonathan Price just this last year, Richard E. Grant, Sam Elliott, and Timothy Chalamet were your missed ones. Zach, you guessed it. There are 38 actresses oh. on the list oh. of those that got oh. the first their first actress nomination. Our first, yeah, first acting nomination for being an actress. Zach, you're first. <laughs> it's usually how you get an acting nomination is if you're an actress. Yeah. Okay. J- Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence is correct. She got a whole bunch, but the first one was for, uh, was for Winter's Bone. Wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga <laughs> is one. correct. I don't. I don't think she got a lot of other acting nominations before her first movie role. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're right. Uh, Brie Larson. Brie Larson's correct for Room. Todd. Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson got two this last year. Correct. Octavia Spencer. Octavia Spencer's correct. Ended up with a bunch, but one for the help. Todd. Patricia Arquette. Patricia Arquette is correct for Boyhood. Regina King. Regina King is correct for If Beale Street Could Talk. Todd. Emma Stone. Emma Stone is correct. Got several of them. I think the first was Birdman. Zach. Uh, Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie is correct. First was for Itanya. Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara is correct. First was for a girl with the dragon tattoo. Zach. Did we say Scarlett Johansson? Yes, we did. I'm sorry. Okay, Melissa McCarthy. Melissa McCarthy is correct. First was for Bridesmaids, but she's been nominated since. Todd. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. Jennifer Jason Lee. Hateful Eight. Correct. Zach. Lori Metcalf. Lori Metcalf is correct. Ladybird. Allison Janney. Allison Janney is correct. One for Itania. Zach. Olivia Coleman. Olivia Coleman is correct. One for the favorite. Todd. Um. Five, four, three, Lupita two. Nyong'o. Lupita Nyong'o's correct for 12 Years a Slave, Zach. Felicia Vikander. Felicia Vikander is correct. One for the Danish girl, which was the wrong movie. Todd. Yeah. Um... Come on, man. I'm trying. Come on, right, man. Uh... <laughs> Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Answer. Uh, uh, Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain. Pulled that out of your butt at the last second. Correct yeah, for, thanks. I think the first was for the help. Yeah. Zach. 
June Squibb. June Squibb. Nebraska. Great that job. Is. Correct. Oh, Jackie Weaver. Jackie Weaver. Todd's girl, Jackie Weaver. Animal Kingdom. And then uh, Z- uh, the, the Silver Linings Playbook later. Correct. Zach. Yalitza Aparicio. Yalitza Aparicio for Roma. Correct. Marina de Tavira. Marina de Tavira yeah, for yeah. Roma. Yeah, that was going to happen. Zach. Emmanuel Riva. Emmanuel Riva for Amor, correct. Covangene Wallace. Covangene Wallace, correct. For Beasts of the Southern Wild. Yeah, those two will be tied together forever. Zach. You guys have gotten 24 of the 38, by the way. Doing much better on the actresses than you did on the actors. Five, four, three, two, one. Answer? Yep, I'm out. He's out. Todd, do you have any more? Anything? Uh, Anything? Bueller? I... I was... I was quoting Breaking Bad there, if you didn't know. Anything? Anything? Bueller? Bueller? Blue Eyes. Anyways. It's a tie. It's a tie. No, it's not. I've got, oh, yeah, a, I've got another category, but it's, it's a tie right now. Okay. Mm. Here's the yeah, ones right. that you missed. You missed uh, Berenice Bayo, uh, uh, Charlotte Rampling. How about Cynthia Erivo? I mean, that was just this last year. Mm. Uh, Felicity Jones, Florence Pugh, uh, Haley Steinfeld, oh, Isabelle Huppert. Isabelle Huppert. God damn it, I should have got that. How, how about Todd? Todd Leslie Manville, dude. Oh. Uh, Mary J. Blige, yeah. Naomi Harris, Rachel McAdams, Rosamund Pike, Ruth Naga, Sally Hawkins. Wow. All right, here's our last category. Todd's going first. The score is tied somehow 21 to 21 uh there were 27 movies in the 2010s that got one oscar nomination and that one nomination was for acting 27 (laughs) movies whose lone nomination was for an acting category that's that's your list 27 movies whose lone nomination was in an acting category. All right? I'll give you guys a second to think about this one. You're killing us, Terry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is awful. Oh, this is a great category, though. This is great. All right. Todd gets to go first on this one. Todd, what do you got? Still Alice. Still Alice is correct. Julianne Moore. <laughs> There are several of these that we've already mentioned in this podcast, by the way. Zach. L? L is correct. That was one I I had to really check on because I wasn't sure if it got nominated for foreign film or not, but it did not. Correct. Isabel Huppert. Todd. The Town. The Town is correct. Where did it go? Where did it go? It's here somewhere. Where's The Town? There it is. The Town. Jeremy Renner. Correct. 
Zach. How many did you say there were? 27. 27? <laughs> yeah. How I was even possible? I was surprised by that number, too. Oh. And there, the, it, it happened in every year except 2013. 2013 is the one year it didn't happen. Just in case you were wondering. Thanks for the... I guess that's a hint. <laughs> um, bridesmaids? Bridesmaids is incorrect. It got a uh, screenplay wow. nomination. So, Todd, what else can you do? Captain Fantastic? Captain Fantastic is correct, good, good yeah. Pick. Good pick. What else? Uh, I just had one. Oh, The Sessions. The Sessions is correct. And I'm going to drop the <laughs> mic on that one because I got nothing else. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you guys are going to be mad at yourself because you missed you missed some obvious ones here. All right, so in twenty, we're mad at you, Terry. That was a terrible. That was a list. great category. <laughs> All right, well, twenty ten. I mean, Blue Valentine. We just talked about. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Rabbit Hole, uh, Animal Kingdom, Todd. Um, yeah, that would have been a good one. Twenty eleven had a better life for Damien Bashir. Uh, the winner in supporting actor, Beginners, in uh, Warrior. <laughs> 2012 had The Impossible with Naomi Watts. Um, 2014, Zach, Two Days, One Night, Marion Cotillard. I thought about that, but I thought that was nominated for foreign nope. film, but I guess I, I missed that. And that. Uh, The Judge, Robert Duvall. That. Oh, who could forget? Yeah. 2015, you had uh, Trumbo, Brian Cranston. You had Charlotte Rampling for 45 Years, Jennifer Lawrence for oh, Joy. All, all the Money in the World? All the Money was in the World one? was on the nah, list, yeah. I, about Sylvester okay. Stallone for Creed. 2016 had Ruth Nega. Well, if I would have thought about it longer, I probably could have gotten it. Uh, 2016 also had Michael Shannon for Nocturnal Animals, by the way. Uh, 2017, you had Denzel Washington, Roman J. Israel Esquire, Christopher Plummer, All the Money Whoa. in the World, <laughs> and uh, how about Willem Dafoe for The Florida Project? Um, I'm, I'm the Roman J. Israel. I forgot that movie existed. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time I've heard that mentioned in three years, at least. 2018, you had a uh, Willem Dafoe at Eternity's Gate and Glenn Close for The Wife. At Eternity's Gate? Good I God. thought The Wife might have been nominated for, like, makeup or something. In 2019, you had it happen twice. Tom Hanks for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood and Kathy Bates for Richard Jewell. Mm. So there you go. Oh. There it is, America. Yeah. That, I thought that was a good list, but you guys just sucked at it. Anyways, at least we have a winner. We have a winner at least. That's good. So Todd wins. So he'll be assigning movies for the two of us to watch um, for our next our next one of these. Next week we'll be doing a deep dive. Uh, all right. Quote of the day: Strawberries, not the cheese. Womack with a little sex in it. Quote of the day: Todd, you're first. Okay, my quote comes from Margin Call, and I feel like it's a quote that we all can uh, sort of embrace as something that we all are going through, and that is Paul Bettany as Will Emerson in Margin Call. He says, Nothing I'm going to say to you is going to make you feel any better. It's just going to suck for a while, and then you'll be fine. I think that is exactly what we are all going through right now. I, I, I would agree with that. That's a, that's a good one. That's a good one. All right, Zach, what do you got? Okay, uh, I have a quote from Lars von Trier. He says, actors need bricks to play with, and in fact, we 
In fact, we rejected all the improvised fragments we had made without a plan. Improvisation without a plan is like tennis without tennis balls. I hate Lars von Trier. <laughs> but you love most of his movies. <laughs> I love two of his movies. The rest... The, when he's breaking not the Waves? When he's not commenting on his other movies, I, I generally prefer that. Yeah, Breaking the Waves is the other movie of his I like. When he's not inserting himself into the movie, a la Charlie Kaufman in Adaptation... It only worked with Charlie Kaufman and Nicolas Cage. Oh, Nicolas Cage and Lars von Trier, though, would be quite a deal. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Not enough room for those uh, All right. Well, my, my quote comes from Nocturnal Animals, because, you know, why not? Uh, and uh, this is a, a quote from, uh, it's between uh, Amy Adams' character and Jake Gyllenhaal's character. So Amy Adams asks him, why are you so driven to write? And uh, Jake Gyllenhaal says, uh, I guess it's a way of keeping things alive, you know, saving things that will eventually die. If I write it down, then it'll last forever. And I feel like that des- describes this podcast, you know. If we, if we hadn't been, you know, we were going to do those trivia categories at some point on our own. It's, uh, at, you know, just because that's what we do. But now it's recorded, and it's going to last forever on this podcast. So, there you go. Cheers to that. You did not you did not have that quote at the beginning of this podcast, right? Mm-mm. Before we started? <laughs> Okay, that would have been impressive. Not at all, not at all. I was like, okay, it's got to be a Nocturnal Animals quote after that reaction. All right, well, that brings our podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, review. You can find us on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, We are uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, and at almostsideways.com. We'll be back at you, like I said, next week with another deep dive. Uh, as we uh, look at the next film in the Almost Sideways Online Film Festival, as we're just finding stuff to stream and talking about it. So feel free to watch with us and listen with us. So until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.